everyone, and welcome to episode 174 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, and we are back for the first installment of a series looking at the year 1993 in the World Wrestling Federation. And like our previous series that you can go back and listen to in the archives at squaredcirclegazette.podbean.com, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you go for your podcasts, you can go back and listen to those previous series that we have done covering 90, 91, 92 in the WWF. But like those, I am joined... On the line, on the other side of the pond, from Cleveland, Ohio, rumors of his demise have been greatly exaggerated. Kyle Ross, how the hell are you? Liam, I am alive. I am alive (laughs) and ready to talk 1993 in the World Wrestling Federation. Great to be back on the airwaves, and it's also great to uh, know that I uh, did the uh, connection here with the audio correctly before we (laughs) on. I don't know how many times in a row on Skype I've probably not had the correct microphone plug-in done. So uh, hopefully I sound better uh, and the people are happy to hear my voice again. My first time doing a podcast in uh, well over two months. At this point, That's so right. hopefully I'm not out of practice. That's right, and, well, especially for this because this is the first part of our series on I three. Uh, you have seg- uh, kind of segmented this series as it comes four parts. We're thinking, right, for this? Yes, four parts. Well, well, we'll see how this goes because I think we're going to go long. <laughs> I'll leave it up to you how you want to divvy them up. But part one is going to go up to WrestleMania. Part two will be WrestleMania through King of the Ring, uh, and then. Part three will be uh, July 4th, a pretty important date that I'm sure everyone knows why, through SummerSlam, and then part four uh, will be the rest of the year. So, uh, yeah, this, not that I didn't love doing 91 and 92 with you, but I've really secretly been looking forward to uh, doing 1993, because I know for folks on your side of the pond, it's it's kind of a year that people look back with, with a lot of reverence because obviously it's the first full year after Wembley and mm-hmm. I think everybody was tuned in by that point. Well that's yeah and that's that's kind of why I'm excited for this because I've mentioned before obviously on the previous series that uh, you know SummerSlam 1992 was when I became very aware of wrestling's existence and I had been kind of dipping my toe in and paying more attention to the WWF but 1993 was the year that I became a wrestling fan for life between the WCW coverage on ITV and the WWF uh, kind of going the direction it goes, which I find very fun. And there's a lot of things this year, even though there's a lot to nitpick, and we're also going to get to the stuff that didn't work, but there's a lot that did, or at least does for me. So uh, I, I cannot wait to get to it. Yeah, it's funny, too, because I'm pretty sure we, we've been through this before. I think I'm six years older than you. I think we've yeah. officially established that. Well, it was 1987 was the first full year where I was a fan. So I, yeah. I was like exactly... Not only am I six years older than you, I was, you know, I started watching wrestling, you know, six yeah. years ahead of you. Mirroring it's funny how that sure. lined up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, before we get into it, I just did want to mention, you know, um, because I meant this is my first podcast and, uh, two, over two months. So hopefully, uh, not out of practice. Like I said, um, you know, I am alive. I'm doing well. <laughs> Everyone who, you know, um, I, I really appreciate all the fans of Top Rope Nation who reached out, um, over the last couple of months just to see how I was doing. That's cool. I obviously, Miss doing shows with Ryan and uh, Justin, Ryan Drosty and Justin Joint, my uh, two colleagues who have done such a fantastic job uh, continuing on with Top Rope Nation. Uh, miss doing shows with them. Don't really miss modern wrestling, though. Yeah, that's that's. <laughs> I, I don't really every, every time I try watching, I'm like, oh, boy, I would just bitch for 90 minutes about this. So <laughs> even though I'm sure we're going to bitch a little bit about 1993, <laughs> Liam, you know, going through this TV, it does give you at least the warm, fuzzy feelings, even when um, you know stuff was was horrible and didn't work. 
Um, I would much, ra- I would much rather watch this than uh, really anything in 2023. Yeah, it's, it's just funny because, like you say, there's going to be, and the, the, there are things about this that, as we will talk about that are pretty fucking wretched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty wretched so yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I, I mean you mean like telling people that you uh spent the weekend uh driving a tank over brutus beefcake's face <laughs> which, which to be honest doesn't say is not wretched the fact that it was a lie i think it was and they sold it as truth is wretched. it doesn't sound like a good time yeah yeah <laughs> i was about ready to drive a tank over his face <laughs> Well, we have so much to get through. 13 pages of notes, which may be the most ever for for any period of time. And considering the fact that we've been through like all the scandals and all that stuff, uh, there's a lot to talk about with with, with this period of time because there's just so much going on. This very much feels, and this is a recurring thing that we're going to get to, this promotion has changed immensely. It really has. Uh, should we get into it here? Because I feel like you said I think it's so. Actually, it, it's technically 13 and a half pages, Liam. Oh, so let's, wow. get, let's get that right. So <laughs> we'll see. But um, before we get into all the you know happenings on television, uh, particularly the major change in television that took place uh, that we all know, before we get started, we should point out that Early 1993 is the period where Dave Meltzer enhances his own reputation with what would unfortunately uh, become a hallmark of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter uh, in future years, his outstanding obituaries. Mm. And I, I say unfortunately, uh, not, not, they're, they're very good and I, I love reading them, I, I love rereading them, but obituaries obviously require people dying, Liam. Uh, indeed, indeed yeah, they do. And, and over the first three months of 1993, we say goodbye uh, to three legends, three people we've talked about, you know, in, in um, varying detail here on this series in, in throughout 90, 91, and 92. Andre the Giant, Kerry Von Erich, and Dino Bravo. Yeah. Anything you'd like to say about these three? Because I guess now is like the best time to hit on this. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, my original comment when I saw this was going to be, I wrote, I wrote back, like, my contribution will be from the Lance Storm School of Obituaries. I was going to say, frankly, I wouldn't call Dino Bravo a legend. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, apparently, like, there were a lot of people that, like, because um, I was going through some stuff. God, what was it? Oh, it was, like, the Scott Keith Observer uh, recaps. Oh, yeah. Of like people, he, he he like wrote back the following week after he did the Bravo obituary. He's like, Jesus, a lot of you hate Dino Bravo, which I mean, for God's sake, <laughs> the way the man was murdered was terrible. Oh my God, it's I mean, it was lit up, lit up in his own home. Yeah, I mean, kidding aside, it's always sad when anything like this happens. But I mean, this is like three very different scenarios and stories behind these deaths, and we don't really have obviously the time to get into each individual one and they've been covered in great detail elsewhere anyway. But um, yeah, I mean, ho- horrible to happen to all three. And I only learned of Dino and Kerry's demise a year later, which was like in the mania 10 magazine. I don't know if you had that one, but they, they did like a special magazine looking back at the previous nine WrestleManias to hype up mania 10. And I seem to remember in that magazine, they'd referenced the late Dino Bravo and I just assumed that meant that he hadn't showed up for his match on time or something like that. Cause I'm only like six or seven at this time. And then they used it later on for Kerry Von Erich as well. And I think I asked my mom what it meant. And she just said that means that they're dead. Just so like, yeah. oh, well, I guess that's that. And then, I, I, but again, the reason why I only knew that then was because as you pointed out, 
Yeah, only Andre's death was acknowledged on WWE TV. Yeah. Uh, they gave a 10-bell salute, a video package on Raw. Yes, Raw. Uh, we'll get mm-hmm. to that in a moment. Uh, he was also announced as the initial inductee in the new WWF Hall of Fame, which did you feel that this was a point that both Meltzer and Keller made, that they started the WWF Hall of Fame because WCW was going to do a Hall of Fame in a few months with the first Slamboree paper. Mm. Did, did you get? Did you feel that way too? That WWF may have started the Hall of Fame to to get a jump on the competition, <laughs> or was was it just a convenient thing? Okay, we want to honor Andre in some way, and we'll do. And it just it just so happened to work that well, we mm. know what like Bruce Bruce Pritchard would call it a coincidence for sure. Oh, he would, but he'd be lying. I, I, I'm, I absolutely would be convinced that this is because WCB was going to do the same thing in a couple of months. And because, I mean, first of all, they only inducted one guy. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's just Andre. It's not like they have like a wing ready or anything like that. It's like, ah, we're going to say there's a Hall of Fame and it's Andre the Giant. So, you, you know, you mentioned the, just the three incredibly different ways. Oh, yeah. Um, these individuals. I, it, uh, by the way, it looks like by all accounts, there's going to be a book done on Dino Bravo coming up. Yes, indeed. And it was uh Cammy, that's my wife for those keeping score at home. Like one day she was like, I don't know, drinking wine or something and you know, I was talking about this podcast and, and, and you and she's like you should write a book about wrestling. I'm like, I don't know about that. I don't have <laughs> think I have time to do that. But she's like, give me an interesting story. Who's an interesting death? I actually mentioned Dino Bravo. I'm you like, know. what a fascinating death that is. Although I'll be honest with you, I'm a little scared with these mob ties. I don't know if I would want to get into it. I, I think this is an answer we may not want to learn. Because to this day, it is not known officially Yeah, who killed Dino Bravo. Um, Kerry Von Erich is obviously a very sad situation. Uh, oh, you know, terrifically sad. Given, you know, obviously, you know, like suicide is a very serious issue that we, we've, you know, learned to even take more seriously as time has gone on. But like the larger picture of the Von Erichs, right? Like oh, by yeah. that point, David and Mike w- had already died, so he was the third brother. It doesn't even count up uh, uh, Jackie, who who, yeah. who had died uh, as, a kid. as a small child. Um, I, I would I talked about Meltzer's obituaries. I would rank the Carrie Von Erich obituary as one of the best ones he's ever done. The death of a dynasty. Yeah, yeah, that is like because it, it, it's a look at the Von Erichs as a whole. And that family, it, I reread it, um, just cause I was going through observers like, Hey, you know what? Let's just reread this. And it, it, it is just a fascinating, fascinating piece of writing from Meltzer. Um, <laughs> there were some tasteless remarks included, however, around this time that we're going to get to. These were, uh, observer tidbits we're going to hit here. Quote, <laughs> oh, there were some angry wrestling fans in Dallas. As Judge Larry Baraka, I, I think I'm getting that pronunciation right, B-A-R-A-K-A, who was the one who was going to sentence Carrie, because Carrie had gotten busted again for drugs and was going to go to jail. Yeah. And that's why he committed suicide. But uh, this judge spoke to the Dallas Morning News the morning after Carrie's suicide and was quoted as saying he took the coward's way out. I'll take some balls. I'll take some A judge, balls to say that. A judge said that? Come on, man. Come on, the body's not even cold, and he's just calling him a coward. I mean, even Lance Ito, I think, would have turned on the microphone in that situation. 
I think Lance Storm would have turned down the microphone in that situation. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but it gets more stunning. So Skandor Akbar, longtime Von Eric rival in World Class, <laughs> he, he goes on TV and says he agreed with the judge and pro- then proclaimed himself, quote, the real king of Dallas as opposed to Fritz. Dave, Meltzer this is, says on the bright side, Kerry probably would have wanted his death to at least inspire something like that. <laughs> I mean, obviously that place, I mean, you know, no one kind of, you know, milked this tragedy um, when it was David and Mike more than than Fritz. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> oh this is incredible, too. Um, on the Lacey and Holly Adkisson benefit show, those are Kerry's kids, which drew uh 1570 paying 16,000, the largest paying crowd in years. They heavily advertised Ultimate Warrior as being there for weeks beforehand and then made no mention of his absence during the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sid Vicious did show up. <laughs> How about Sid saving the day and showing up? <laughs> when you've got Sid, when it's not Sid no showing, what a story that is. Uh, but he show, teamed with his old trainer, Johnny Rotten, and it was Johnny who did the job to the Ebony Experience. What a yes. story that is, by the way, in 1993 WCW. Everyone worked the show for free, and Fritz von Eric never told any of them, them thanks for doing so. Oh, dear me. That was Dave, so. Um, yeah. This is so. the show, though, that gets Harlem Heat, it gets, uh, Harlem Heat into WCW. As yes. an aside. Sid yes. puts the word in after this. Yes, and, and Colonel Parker wins them in a card game. <laughs> in a vignette that thankfully never aired. <laughs> in 1993 oh, but by, by the horrific standards uh, of like uh you know discussion of race and wrestling in 19 even that was too bad for wrestling in 1993 winning them in a card game <laughs> hey it almost made it Colonel the Parker, it almost did like wasn't it like at the last minute someone's like oh my god what are we about to put on our television yeah i think it was bischoff to, to give him a morsel of credit. It's, it, I think he's like, he just saw it. And he's like, what in the flying fuck? No way. Yes. So people can look that up on their own there. Yes. Uh, all right. Let's get back. Uh, I guess let's get to, um, you know, what, the task at hand here, Liam. Yes. What we're looking to accomplish in this episode. We are going, part one, we will cover up everything up to WrestleMania 9. Pardon me. Uh, since WrestleMania 9 generally considered the worst WrestleMania, and people seem to enjoy it when we rebook, there was a lot of mm-hmm. Facebook comments. Uh, as we go through things, we're going to be offering our suggestions on how we think the card could have been made better, which is really not hard to do. There's, I think, a lot of uh, meat on the bone there. But is there anything you would like to add before we start, like, uh, yeah, on the television really. proper? Yeah, I, ju- I just think that, like like you say there, there, there are vast improvements you could make with this roster. I feel like WrestleMania 9 comes off like a really weak show when you actually just look at the card at face value. And it's like, it didn't have to be like this. I will also add that I did not enjoy the final episode of Primetime, which did air at the start of 93, where Jameson returns to stink up yeah. the promotion one last time and Vince McMahon guffaws loudly at uh, the hijinks that Bobby Heenan has to sell. Let's get rid of that turd. Yeah, although didn't the last Primetime do like a decent number? <laughs> They said they were like, joke. they're like, they're like, yeah, believe it or not, it did like an okay number. So, but yeah, yes. Jameson. Yeah. All right. We're, we're, we've got a big coming and going section coming up. Oh let, yeah. Let, let's, uh, let's say kiss off one person first. He doesn't need much. Jameson hit the bricks, pal. You, you, you were no good. Although you, he did do an interview in later years where he talked about getting high with sensational Sherry. So Jameson's not ter- all bad. 
I'll well, say. you know, it's not, it's not, I don't even blame the guy, you know. As far as portraying an annoying nerd goes, he did it well. It's just the fact that I don't want to fucking watch it. That's a very good point. A very good point. But yeah. what did you just say there? The final episode of yes. Primetime Wrestling. Well, did WWF just stop doing TV on Monday nights on the USA Network? No, they did not! Because, <laughs> Liam, it is time to get uncooked. Uncut! Uncensored! <laughs> so, in our final two episodes of the 1992 series, we began each of those episodes with the WWF making a big reactionary move, right? They take oh, SummerSlam yeah. to your neck of the woods in the UK, and then Bret Hart in October won the WWF title. Hard right turns, reactionary moves to business being down. Yeah. We said that in the first several episodes of 1993, we're going to continue with that theme. We teased it at the end of the last show. Everybody knows what's coming. 1993 starts with the biggest change to WWF television in six plus years and probably the, not probably, definitely the biggest ever Monday Night Raw. <laughs> I, I just um, want to clarify my comment. I, I think I even may have mentioned this at the end of part five, 92. When I say the biggest change in six plus years, you know, 86, the fall season, they flipped over to the syndication of challenge, yes. su- uh, superstars and challenge. We always had superstars on uh, Saturday here in Cleveland. Challenge would air on Sunday. And the television was largely, I mean, primetime went through some cosmetic changes we've talked about. But WWF television was very much the same, Liam, uh, from 1986 through 1992. Yeah, and that was kind of, we, we did talk about at the end of the last episode where it was just like, even though you probably wouldn't have been thinking of it in these terms as a kid, but this had to feel like a breath of fresh air. Absolutely. So let's talk about it. The first episode of Monday Night Raw emanating live from the sold-out Manhattan Center, uh, 1,000 people in attendance, 600 paid, went down on January 11th of 1993. In-ring results saw Yokozuna over Coco Beware, the Steiners over the Executioners. Shawn Michaels beat Max Moon. More on that later. And The Undertaker over Damian Demento. I, I thought this was a fun little tidbit. There was also a Tito Santana Iron Mike Sharp match that did not air on television, but took place in the building during a Royal Rumble event center that aired on television. Got to keep the crowd hot. Yeah. Not to, <laughs> not to set it off. Canada's greatest athlete. <laughs> All right, in all seriousness, your thoughts on the Manhattan Center, the initial look and feel of Raw, Liam? Uh, yeah, I like it. I, I've always liked it. I like the look of the building. I love the energy. It does feel, the way they shoot it and the way it sounds, it sounds like it's more than a 1,000 people. I'll say that. When you think about that number, it's like an ECW arena crowd. Um, mm-hmm. This is live, very different element than the company and even the viewer is used to. And we talked previously as well in that part of the, of the, uh, the end of 1992 about that kind of canned nature of superstars and challenge and how that didn't really feel like it was helping during a down period it kind of felt like they were starting to run out of ideas for things they could do in that format at yeah. least to me and it's which is funny because on night one when you watch this first episode once you get past the atmosphere and some of the particulars about the things that they do that we'll talk about with that lineup with no really big angles and the kind of the execution of the show it feels like they're trying to just do superstars, but live. 
and with with like zany hijinks surrounding the wrestling as well, mm-hmm. like the Bobby Heenan, the Bobby Heenan sketch, which is trying to get in the building, things like that. But with the nature of the building and the focus on New York, it does still feel big time, I think, with how they shoot it. Um, they probably get away with the fact that they're doing the the um, you know the, 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 the arena show still with superstars anyway, so it doesn't feel like they, this is something they are forced to do, at least even if it is. But and they get better with the format as well as weeks go by, and it gets a little bit more loose and it becomes a bit more interesting. But this first one does feel like a real kind of trial run of doing it live. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned that they had sort of run out of ideas mm. on the weekend shows, how to make those feel different. I think we mentioned at some point that they put that big video board up Yeah, for the syndication, right? That was like something new. But, you know, we had... And it's funny, you mentioned how kind of canned and sort of tired Superstars and Challenge started to feel throughout 92. And I think we had even joked about that because we know what's coming, when you rewatch 1992, it feels even more canned and tired. Because you, you you do get the sense that the company needed to change its television. Uh, and they did. This was a welcome change. The shows, most of them were all sellouts in this initial run. We, we talked about a 1,000 people being in the building, you said it, it felt like more than that. Eric Bischoff, <laughs> I guess his second mention on the show, unfortunately, your good buddy, he's on the record as hating the Manhattan Center look yeah. and environment that, you know, it kind of made WWF look small time. Any thoughts on Mr. Bischoff there? Uh, I, in fairness to that perspective, I can see why he would think that. I mean, to be blunt, Considering I know there's a point you want to make here about what WCW ends up doing later this year, but I don't actually think they're that different, <laughs> frankly. No, I because I all right. So W, it's what's funny, and and I can't remember who said this point, I, but I, I wanted to say it here on the show. It feels like WWF is almost kind of going like MTV unplugged here at a time that WCW looks to literally go Disney like, yeah. as they take their TV to Disney. And like, you know, you think about the history of the WWF since national expansion, like doing TV at Disney sounds like something they would do. Yeah, it does. It Whereas does. the Monday night raw environment felt like something WCW would do. I love, I love that you've, you've said that it feels like they are both reaching. Cause what happens with, with WCW when they go to Disney, first of all, the people in the crowd haven't even paid to get in. The people who are in the crowd are prompted who to cheer and boo. It's the most inauthentic environment that you could possibly get, which is something that WWF had been kind of, you know, known for with their creative editing techniques at times with the crowd reactions. Whereas this, live raw, it's like no net. And I really feel that this could have benefited certain people had they stuck around because it's, it's, this is a different wheelhouse that allows different types of performers to shine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, one raw, which we'll get to was taped. Uh, so they weren't all live. And then, you know, there was another, uh, in Poughkeepsie that, uh, so they weren't all in the Manhattan center either. Um, and you talked about like several times you've mentioned, Crowd reaction. That's going to be a big story. We're going to get to that in a bit because I actually think that's like the biggest um, oh, yeah. jarring takeaway from these initial Raws is the crowd and its reactions. But a funny note, Liam, a Wrestling Observer newsletter reader 
happened to be running by the Manhattan Center between periods of the New York Rangers game on January 11th. So this was the first episode. So Sean Moody asked him to stay and pretend to be buying tickets for next week as part of the Bobby Heenan angle. You, you just <laughs> want to really quickly mention the Bobby Heenan angle because I know you you referenced it earlier. Yeah, it was basically, and I don't mind it, but it's the idea of like Bobby Heenan's no, he's not going to be part of Raw. So he is trying to find a way to get in the building. So he dresses up as like an elderly woman. He dresses up as, a, as like a Hasidic Jew. He's just trying to get in. And it's like, it's a, it's a show going, finally he gets in right as the show goes off the air. The only thing of any real merit here is, is when the first time when he's wearing the woman's getup and the wig comes off and Sean Mooney just, Bobby Heenan, like it wasn't like obvious. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm always like, like that. Yeah, yeah. It's Sean Mooney's final days with the company, too, by the way. <laughs> uh, we'll hit on that in a second. Go out on a high. Yeah, I guess so. Um, debut episode did a 2.5 rating. The, oh, and by the way, yes, Bobby Heenan was not on commentary. We'll talk about that, yeah. why that was in a bit. That's a downer. But the debut episode did a 2.5 rating, though it wasn't particularly good, uh, said Dave. But after the second week's episode, January 18th, Wade Keller of the Pro Wrestling Torch wrote, quote, if the 118 show is any indication of what is to come in future weeks, Raw will quickly become a collector's favorite, much like Bill Watts' old UWF programs. My word, Liam. <laughs> Wade going on a, 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 a strong take there. Yeah, a re- real hot take. He's going out on a limb. I, I gotta say, that's, uh, it's incredible foresight or just really just going for it with, with a wild prediction because when you watch the first show, you certainly would not think that. Yeah. And the, and the second episode, uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll let's just hit on it now. It yeah. has Mr. Perfect beating Terry Taylor. Ric Flair beats Tito Santana. And there's a lot of brawling. With yeah. uh, perfect and flair, it is a much better episode than the first one. It but is, I mean, yeah. yeah. To compare it to like vintage mid south, I thought was a bit of a stretch. Uh, wacky angles. You talked about the hijinks, Liam. <laughs> that stuff you maybe wouldn't have seen on the weekend television. There, there's an angle uh, between Randy Savage and the Repo Man, where Repo Man steals Randy Savage's hat. He attacks him at the start of the show, steals his hat, sets up a match the following week. You have Kamala chasing Kim Chi throughout the Manhattan Center crowd. Yes, including up on the balcony upstairs. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, God bless you, Wade, but neither of those is them burying the cowboy under the Russian flag, nor is it Bill Watts slapping Jimmy Cornette prior to the last stampede. Ironically enough. Were you going to say this, that they actually do do their version of putting Bill Watts on the Russian flag? Uh, They do it on the the syndicated shows. Yeah, on superstars. Yes, they do. They kick off. The thing is, this is what um, is annoying. They kick off Raw with that great scene where, like, they're doing the intros, as they always do. The three guys standing there, introing you. And then Reaper just attacks Savage out of nowhere from behind. And you just think, God, you know, this is actually quite exciting. Imagine doing an angle like this and choosing the fucking Repo Man. Fucking Fat Darso is the guy that you're going to give this to. This could, have, this could have been excellent if you'd have given it to like a guy who actually had something. Yeah, Savage takes a hell of a bump. Like, yeah. I, don't know if, like Repo, I don't know if Repo got him good or what from behind, but like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like cool. Like, they're just doing this, and Repo just charges on nowhere, hits Savage, steals his hat, and Savage sells it great. But yeah, the fucking Repo man, for God's sake. Yeah. All right. Crowd reactions and behavior you typically would not hear or see on WF television. <laughs> Very different audience in the Manhattan Center, mostly male, hardcores. It's not the families and kids you're used to seeing on WF weekend television. 
Uh, the Manhattan Center was GA. That's general admission. So there's, quote, pushing and shoving reportedly to get in, which mm. discourages families and kids. Uh, as a result, with the more hardcore audience, crowd sweetening not required. But you also get some atypical pro-heel reactions. Yes, we do. We want flair during a easy for Tatanka. Yeah, easy for me to say. Yeah, we want flair chant during a Tatanka match. Yeah, after Flair's gone, which is the key. Also, and it's versus Damien Demento. That match deserved that chant. It earned every bit of it. <laughs> yeah, to Damien Demento. This guy was freaking. I mean, he just debuted a couple weeks earlier, and you're already counting the days down till he's gone. Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, in an effort to try and discourage pro flair chance, the WWF sent out Bobby Heenan. This was off air, and Heenan had the following to say to the crowd: "Don't waste your breath cheering for Ric Flair because he doesn't care. He thinks you're all losers." And then. <laughs> So, so the We Want Flair chance happened multiple times. It wasn't just, you know, during this Tatanka match after he left. Yes, after he left. More on that in a moment. But Ric Flair himself actually came out and addressed a crowd that was uh, cheering for him. Again, off air. Flair told the crowd, if New York had a football team, it would be on the map. If New York had a baseball team, it would be on the map. It's a town built on losers. I don't know if I understand those quotes because New York definitely has football and baseball teams. I know that the Giants and Jets are technically located in New Jersey, but still, I don't know if that. Well, uh, just to show how effective those insults were, Liam, they only made the fans cheer Flair harder. Yeah, I I don't think that uh, this is not the superstars audience. It's New York and they love it when people give them shit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the crowd chanted for Razor during a Bret Hart interview. Sure did. They, and, and that's another one. They like Razor a great deal. That becomes pretty evident as the weeks go on. They also pop when Razor, in a real power move on live TV, Kyle, just nails Vince with a toothpick, which I don't think he knew was going to happen because Vince gives this little reaction where it's not like an announcer just kind of selling it. It's like, oh, really? Okay. Which I love. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, <laughs> Vince, it was, it was really interesting to see him, um, you know, on Raw, just in, in like in this environment, you know, like Vince McMahon, you know, just being like just in the teeth of New York City. I, I think he kind of like didn't know what he was supposed to do. Certainly, this is years before the Mr. McMahon character. Um, you know, he's still kind of just being Vince, like the Vince you grew up on, I guess. Uh, there was a fan sign on the January 18th Raw, which read, The Horseman Will Rule Again, Rick Arn, Barry, and Eric Watts, the sign read. Uh, that sign was confiscated. Shockingly, a sign which read, Vince in 96 was not confiscated. Uh, it should have been. It should have been. Yeah, and thank I mean, God no one saw that first sign and actually went with it. Yeah, 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 Eric. Well, <laughs> well, there was no Barry in the horseman, but they did get Paul Roma in there. So, yeah, well, yeah not much better. Fucking Paul Roma? Anyway... <laughs> Uh, during a match between Virgil and Iron Mike Sharp on that January 18th episode, this is incredible. The crowd chanted, Virgil sucks and let's go Mike. Now, that's not the incredible part. The incredible part is pro wrestling torch correspondent George Corchia was taken aback by the, quote, mean-spirited chants towards Virgil, noting it was Martin Luther King Day and the chants could be racially motivated. <laughs> 
for fuck's sake. And I'm the guy who wrote the Rodney King paper. People can go back in the archives and check on this. That is a goddamn stretch to think that these were racially motivated chants and not the fact that Virgil indeed sucks. <laughs> yeah, pick your battles, George. If you're going to go for this, doing it for Virgil is, 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 is not the way to go because he was poor during this period of time. I don't know what the hell happened to him or if he just... I, it, it, Defies belief. I want to point out that since Virgil, this this may be one of only two or three references to Virgil that we're going to get in. I do want to mention Virgil briefly here for a superstars issue to go off the beaten track, where he gets jobbed hard against Luger on a superstars as if he's like Barry Horowitz, like pinned with one finger in about a minute after the forearm shot. He's left for dead as Luger just kind of throws his body around to show that he's out cold. He gets put in a swinging full Nelson. He's still out cold. He's lying there for minutes. And Lex like, you know, puts his foot on the chest and hits the double bicep. And you just look at that and you're like, Verge, you should have sold for Bigelow when you had the <laughs> chance. And I'm Because I'm surprised after that match that there was no follow-up from Mr. Courtier. Yeah, so, so here's the thing. <laughs> Here's uh, what Liam is referencing, in case you forgot, is Bam Bam Bigelow's first match they taped was against Virgil, and it didn't air because they didn't think Virgil sold properly. So, no. I, yeah, it seems that they really put him on the job squad after that. Uh, and by the way, it should it should be noted that once April hit, well after Martin Luther King Day, Virgil was still getting heckled by the Manhattan Center crowd. He has in a abysmal performance against Razor Ramon. You talk about how poor Virgil was in 93. There, He went for a roll-up against Razor Ramon. Oh, it was God, like I the wrong this. part of the ring. And he like they were going to go like out of the ring. This was on Raw. He tried rolling him up, but they just get tangled in the ropes. It was the worst attempted roll-up in professional wrestling history. Uh, not only that, but I think the week before, I think he has another stinker with Bam Bam Bigelow in the Manhattan Center, where again... They're just booing Virgil and ch- they're chatting Bam Bam during the when he's just beating. Oh. At one point, he tries to slide between the legs and he doesn't even make it, and Bill just stamps on him. <laughs> it's like this, this sucks. I did catch that. Yes, I, and that and that's the match where they're chanting Virgil sucks again. Yes, that was absolutely <laughs> the one uh, I was referencing. Okay, back to Raw, big picture stuff here. Uh, you know, with the live format, you get some kind of production snafus you typically would not find from Titan. The rare sight of Vince McMahon wearing glasses. This was a big thing Wade Keller called attention to. Uh, Randy Savage would have headset issues. Undertaker Skinner, which closed out an episode, it goes two minutes before the show goes off the air. It was announced the conclusion would be shown the following week, but it never was. Yeah, this is this is some of the, the pitfalls of, of doing live television. I mean, it's actually worth noting that they really hadn't done too many live broadcasts outside of pay-per-view before. Like, there there is a point, like, I think it's the Flair Perfect match, where, like, the audio from the Sci-Fi Network cuts in or something like that. Yeah, and, that's like, right. That's... And Vince is, like, referencing it. Like, yeah, we got some audio. Maybe, like, a radio station's breaking into our feed. It's like, what the fuck is this? So, the um the first main event was live in 88. We know, and that was like a big deal how that yeah. how it was live. And then the second one, right? I mean, why am I drawing a blank here? Was the I, second I, main event live with the Hogan Savage turn? Did that did, was that live or no? Uh, may have been because wasn't that with the uh, the Tizime? Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes, of yep. course it was. So there you go. Um, all right. Well, one drawback uh, was the painfully unfunny. <laughs> those are Dave Meltzer's words. Rob Bartlett who was in the Raw 
uh, announce booth. Rob Bartlett came from the Don Imus show. For those unfamiliar, uh, that was kind of like a rival to the Howard Stern show in the 90s mm, okay. in terms of like talk radio. I, I, I don't like Don Imus. So I'm going to be very blunt with you right now and we'll just <laughs> move on. But um, he so he's with McMahon and Savage Bartlett every week on Raw. In addition to coming off as, quote, unprepared for Dave Meltzer, Bartlett would say of the top heel Yokozuna, quote, he has an ass like an amphitheater and, quote, that's one big butted oriental. <laughs> you can't go with oriental. He also repeatedly saying he needs a bra any time he's on Raw. That's always good. Yeah, in keeping with the racial insensitivity, Bartlett said of Coco Beware, quote, I always wondered what happened to Gary Coleman. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, that's, I feel like Jesse would always, like, say that, too. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, I know, my goodness. But, yeah, so Rod, so they, they put a comedian in, in the yeah. third spot. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to your thoughts here in a second. I do want to point out, as maligned as Bartlett was, it's not all bad. He got this zigger off. Coming up on USA, the Amy Fisher story starring Sensational Sherry and Vince McMahon as Joey Buttafuoco. I am fucking dead. I was. <laughs> fucking kayfabe, Rob. In light of recent stories, Vince McMahon really is uh, Joey Buttafuoco. I think people could Google that Joey Buttafuoco, Amy Fisher story if they want. That was a big deal at the time. Uh, Bartlett also did a parody of Sinead O'Connor ripping up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. Instead, Bartlett teared up a picture of Bobby Heenan and said, fight the real enemy. I had to Google this because <laughs> I forgot about Sinead O'Connor ripping up the picture of the Pope on SNL. That was a huge deal at the time. Really? Oh, you don't remember that? Oh, no, because we don't get SNL, so it's like it means nothing to us. Okay, yeah, so this was like a really big deal. Like, Sinead O'Connor, she, I mean, she had, uh, well, what's the fucking song? Nothing compares, compares to you. To you. That, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that was, like, really popular. That, that was years before 93. I feel that was, like, 90 or something. But anyway, she goes on SNL, Sinead O'Connor, pulls out a picture of Pope uh, John Paul II, it would have been, mm. and rips it up right in front of the camera and goes, fight the real enemy. <laughs> and it it was, like, a big-time deal. She was, like, getting booed at her concerts. Oh. It, it, it was... It was a career killer. It's funny. The record companies thought when she shaved her head, that was going to be a career killer. But it was ripping up the picture of the Pope on SNL that was the killer. So I, when I was like, why did he say fight? So I Googled fight the real enemy, and that story came up. And, and yeah, so Bartlett tore up a picture of Bobby Heenan to, to parody uh, uh, Sinead tearing up a picture of the Pope. Yeah, Rob so Bartlett, though, your thoughts? Yeah, Bartlett. I mean, Bobby Heenan was not the real enemy. Rob Bartlett may have been the real enemy. Bartlett clearly came into this job. It kind of, you want to say in fairness to him, but I almost kind of don't want to say that at the same time. These initial weeks, not only unprepared, which he clearly was, but it felt like the idea was that he wasn't supposed to be. You know, like, I feel like yeah. they, they, it's like, we're going to bring in a comedian and your job is to just react to whatever you see, crack the one liner jokes as many as you want and just give it that vibe. Because, he that, that was the role that he was pretty much put in, which is it's, it's funny how it gets executed. Obviously, it really exposes just how fucking unprepared he is. But there is a, you know, a note here. Bartlett got the role. I don't know if you saw this or read this or what, but he got the job because he was doing a charity benefit. One of the ones that Vince is at, um, which we'll come to soon. Um, and Bartlett spots Vince in the crowd because he's wearing a peach colored tux. 
And Bartlett just does a routine on Vince and his tux at one point saying, nice suit, Vince. Does it come in any heterosexual colors? And that is Vince loved it so much that he hired oh it. <laughs> Hiring practices of the 1993 World Wrestling Federation. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine getting hired with that joke. Yeah. <laughs> now, now that joke gets you fired in 1993. It gets you hired. How yeah. <laughs> times have changed. So, and that's the thing when you have a guy like this who's just you know taking the the wisecracks, it just comes off like burying the product all the time at a time. When they desperately need to get new stuff over. And it's, and that's kind of a problem. That first Raw, when like Damien Demento's in the main event, they just say, you know, in the ring, Damien Demento, Bartlett just comes out like, he's just like he roll, you can almost hear him rolling his eyes at the stupidity of this name, this character. So, like, oh geez, at least he used his real name, you know, like it's just so like fucking dumb. And then Bearer comes out and he's like, who's the guy with the martini shaker? <laughs> reference in the urn and okay. Vince is like okay okay I'm gonna be honest with you that's fucking funny <laughs> I, like, I like that line okay, I like the line funny. I can't believe he said who's the guy with the martini shaker <laughs> and Vince is like you know who that is he's been around for a while it's almost like he's like, like you're trying to teach a kid and then when he just doesn't say anything he goes it's Paul Bearer that's, that's awkward. Yeah, uh, it is. Fu- it is funny. The lone negative <laughs> remark on Rob Bartlett's Wikipedia page is in regards to his this stint with the WWF. <laughs> it's like this one sentence. It's like it was not received well, as he really had no product knowledge, and he was gone after a while. Um, he like you know he would be excoriated. I think is as much as malign as he was back then. Like now with social media, he would be completely excoriated because. He was very like, you know, like derisive towards wrestling fans. You could tell there was one raw that opened with like four fans. Uh, spell it, each had like a letter like H U L K spelling Hulk. And hmm. Bartlett's like, oh look, wrestling fans can spell. Oh, yeah, that's not good. But, yeah, like imagine if you did that now. Like they'd like, yeah, they'd come with the the pitchforks. Um, I actually, oh, he he wouldn't have lasted an episode. No. No, maybe a one and done. Yeah, um, terrible Mike Tyson impression. You know, I mean, well, we we've kind of looked back and said, hey, you know, some of these jokes were okay. Well, his Mike Tyson impression was absolutely (laughs) fucking lousy, just (laughs) ruining like the episode. And Randy Savage was was also not a particularly good commentator. It should be pointed out, and he's kind of struggling, I think, to find his role with Vincent Bartlett. Yeah. So, and, and like, he's just trying to be a good company man. So Bartlett's doing this Tyson impression and Savage just wants to, you know, I, th- I think just use the word raw. And Savage goes, you know, you got a raw deal, Mike. And Vince McMahon chimes in. Not everyone would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. It's like you got a raw deal ending up where you are right now. I'm like, fucking hell, Randy. Good God. Yeah. These fucking candy asses today get worked with a Brit Baker t-shirt with a black eye on. And here we got a guy hired for a homosexual joke. And then Randy Savage giving Mike Tyson a pat on the back live from the penitentiary. Yes. This this impression is fucking putrid. (laughs) Putrid. It ruins the Shawn Michaels-Max Moon match. This is like the best part of Raw, that first episode. And he's just, just... torpedoing it with his Mike Tyson impression. He also did an entire show in March impersonating Elvis. 
which was yeah. similarly abysmal. Shout out Ryan Drasty, big Elvis fan. <laughs> I wonder if he was a fan of this. I hear he likes Elvis impersonators. I, 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 I can't imagine. I cannot imagine he's going to like because it wasn't a good one. <laughs> And then he follows it up on a later show, late, late March, doing an impression of Arnie, which is also poor. And it's like, come on, like, why, what's with these impersonations? He says the shit. Well, okay, you want, there's one particular impression that didn't go over well, I think, with his own co-hosts. So, Bartlett does not last long. We've given him far probably too much time in this episode. He was, he's gone by April 19th, is his yeah. last episode of Raw. So he lasts three months in the role. He sucks. Uh, you could really tell the writing was on the wall, though, by March 15th where he spends the entire episode pretending to be Vince, only to be buried, and I mean buried, throughout the episode <laughs> by Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. It's Gorilla, Bobby, and Bartlett pretending to be Vince, and Gorilla and... Well, when Gorilla and Bobby, in character, are on the same page, you know <laughs> the other guy is in some trouble. Yeah, absolutely. It was a... Uh, the thing with Bartlett and these impressions, it's like he's got, like... 30 seconds of material, and then it's just the, the actual fact that he's impersonating the guy that's supposed to carry him through. And that, like, shines through here where Gorilla just tires of this at, like, the six-minute mark. Oh, he's just outwardly saying, how long do I have to put up with this? Yeah. I mean, I mean, Gorilla, if you think Gorilla didn't want to have any part of uh, Art Donovan, King of the Ring 94, <laughs> oh, I mean, Art Donovan was Bobby Heenan compared to how Gorilla felt about Rob Bartlett. I mean, it was like, I don't even think the first match was over, and Gorilla wanted to throw Bartlett out on his ass. (laughs) Gorilla Bobby Heenan plays along and plays like, this is the best Vincent Sandy Weeks. He does, but then even Heenan kind of turns on him. (laughs) Hold on, I got to get some of the quotes, because... I mean, they're just, I mean, Gorilla and Bobby are just shitting on this guy. Where is it? Okay, here it is. All right, hold on one second. I have it. Okay. Uh, Bartlett as Vince. And Backlund giving us the appearance of a younger, youthful Mickey Rudy. <laughs> Gorilla, what? I'm going to knock him out. He didn't <laughs> go ahead. I'll hold him. I wanted to do that, and then I'll go through the pockets. Gorilla, do you think there's anything in his pockets? He didn't. Nah, let's just knock him out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and this, this is what you do, Gorilla. And tired of Bartlett. Vince, he's gone brain dead. <laughs> Heaton, didn't you make an appointment for him on Thursday morning? Monsoon, absolutely. Heaton, with who? Monsoon, Dr. Kevorkian. (laughs) (laughs) He said this on air. (laughs) Sorry, Rob. Rob Rob as Vince goes, I don't know about that, Gorilla Monsoon. (laughs) Monsoon goes, one visit will be sufficient. You know, Gorilla, Gorilla's great because, like, he's not subtle when he does this stuff in the slightest. Like, he's like, I'm not going to sell. There's one point where, like, again, Bartlett's trying to, like, Bartlett just hasn't said anything for a while. So he got, and this, this, okay, again, this 30 seconds of material. He's funny in this, Bartlett's funny when he's like, oh, and now he's got him in the hand area, which is, like, typical Vince. Like, yeah, there's, like, yeah. a couple of little minor things that are amusing. 
But then at one point he just starts like he's got like nothing to do, so he just starts like doing like a hyperspeed speaking like. It's like again I don't know why that's supposed to be funny, but doing it in Vin- the Vince voice is supposed to be amusing. And good is just like doesn't even sell it at all, and he's just like yeah that's great, <laughs> just like moves on. Yeah, I mean they, they really just so um yeah so Rob Bartlett uh, we hardly knew you. Any final thoughts? On well. Him? I mean, Bartlett was castrated the week after, too. Like, he did this. And the week afterwards, when he's back with Vince, he's, like, barely offering any jokes at all. He's laughing like a corporate shill at everybody else's jokes, which he hadn't been doing much before this. Uh, at one point, he does try to get a line off, and Vince completely no-sells him. And he's just like, yeah, I don't think that really matters, Rob. And then just like, and then at the end of the show, like, Rob Bartlett has to make out with his fan club, which is all the, the heavyset ladies who are doing the... Uh, yeah, the raw card girls, yeah, with the, the little signs they would hold, like the boxing or whatever, saying you like it raw or whatever. Like, and then like as he's kissing this uh, large woman, Sarah's like, yeah, that's the best you're gonna get, Rob. <laughs> it's like <laughs> they're really like it's really quite mean spirited. Yeah, yeah, I mean he sucks, but it, you know you touched on this, but it was like ridiculous to even try him in that role. They love doing things like this, and it never works. Yeah, but really, yeah. I, I thought the big takeaway was as unsuited as Bartlett was for that commentary role. Yeah, he's a comedian, and he was less funny than Bobby Heenan. Yeah, and that's that's like the big thing for me because it's like Bobby Heenan. If you feel like you need to change your television, if you think things are stale, the one thing in 1992 and 1991 that you did not need to change was Bobby Heenan on commentary. Yeah, and, and as soon as he starts doing Raw, the commentary is great. It's it's miles better with with Heenan there. Okay, so the commentary had its issues here, but by February 1st, Raw did a 3.0 rating with a Typhoon versus Doink main event on top, no less. <laughs> uh, that is the highest rating for any cable wrestling show in 10 months. So the new show seems like it's working, Liam. Uh, we'll hit on some of the major angles here in a bit. Anything you want to add here? Um, you know, I will say... We talk about some of the obviously with Rob Bartlett, one of the, the kind of the, the the dour parts of this, but it is nice, big picture, to see them try something new and experiment a bit in response to business going down. It's the old adage I've been hearing for years and years and years, and it's true that you know Vince will change things when the numbers go down, and that's really the only time he ever feels the need to change things. And this does immediately feel like the destination show of this promotion, as evidenced by the fact that there's a 3.0 for Typhoon v Doink. You know, and I think it's it's appropriate. I like the way that it feels because it's it's come right at a time where the promotion comes off like a new WWF in a lot of ways, with with so many new characters being introduced at once. The new champ in Brett. This is a ridiculous comparison that I'm going to make, but I'm going to make it anyway because this is like oh, it's it's a chalk and cheese comparison, and one was successful and one wasn't. But like in the same vein as when like the day after WrestleMania 14. When the WF just feels like a new promotion with Austin at the helm, mm-hmm. a new DX, they're doing an Inferno match, an evening gown match, Val Venus, the porn star, is coming. You know, it's like there's a, there's a shift and it feels like a lot of things are happening at once. And this is kind of like an organic change that's happening with it as opposed to like, you know, a, 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 it didn't feel forced. It felt like this was this felt right with with the kind of the tenor of the way things were swinging in this promotion. Couple things. Um, you know, we're kind of joking, like, oh, my God, you, you might be out there listening, saying Typhoon versus Doink does a 3.0. What's up with that? I wonder how much of that was it was residual because it was the week after. It, it will obviously be hitting on this later that Hulk Hogan returned. So and you talk about it being like the destination show. Where did Hogan return? 
Indeed. Raw. On Raw. So, um, also, you know what? I, I was I couldn't help but think Raw was. It, it was similar to what they, you know, they tried going even smaller time with Shotgun Saturday Night. Oh, in yeah. In 97. But this worked where Shotgun Saturday Night did. I don't know if Shotgun Saturday Night was just, like, kind of too, like, small time and too just, like, I don't know what word I'm looking for to like, you know, unproduced. Like it was like, all right, well, like, you know, WWF, you know, in the Manhattan center, that works, but WWF in these like small nightclubs and those shows didn't come across well at all. Oh, they were the shit. Okay. So this, this is actually kind of, this, this may have been a better analogy than the one that I used, but the, the shotgun thing is great. Cause it's like that shotgun always felt to me like this was their attempt to try and do ECW. Yes. Like the smaller, shows from a nightclub it'd be a cool environment except they've got tickle me fucking elmo and it's like that's where the, the comparison is for me it's like here this feels like a natural evolution of this promotion at this time and place where the wf is changing anyway that is where they've still got the sultan running around and they're trying to be edgy yes yes uh and you know the birth of raw during this time period liam extra important here's the point we need to hit because this is the first time WWF would have no major network presence in the yeah, build to mania. It's a big deal. They, of course, Saturday X main event slash the main event dates all the way back to 86. You know, you know, they ran the big Hogan Bundy angle on Saturday X main event. Um, you know, every year there, they were on NBC or, you know, in 92, it was Fox right before WrestleMania. They don't have that this year um, for the first WrestleMania. There was MTV and SNL, obviously, yep. with Hogan and Mr. T getting on it. Um, there, there were rumors that Fox might do a Saturday Night's main event in March of 93. That doesn't happen. They, instead, they do a two-hour March to WrestleMania show on the USA Network. Yeah, that's their big show. Yeah, it wasn't very good. Which is uh, Raw, essentially just like Raw with an extra hour. Yes, exactly. Uh, Raw was not the only new show on the WF TV docket in early 93, Liam. WWF Mania which was originally going to be called Slam and Jam and air at 6.05 Eastern on Saturday night. Oh, my word. Uh, obviously, the counter-program WCW Saturday night. Well, that show made its debut on January 9th, Saturday, a Saturday morning, two days before Raw. Uh, the newsletters said it just offers, and this is true because I've watched it, it offered more of the same recaps and taped matches from Superstars and Challenge. It appears to be aimed towards kids, and it opened with a .8 rating, which is not good. Yeah, so there's there's a comparison for you. The one show that's live got kind of a different atmosphere. I'm not going to say that Raw is particularly edgy at this point. It's it's just a live wrestling show, and it's got a, a different environment. But this one, where it's like advertised, even in the ads, it's just like this goofy show with like Todd Pengill making stupid faces and sound effects going off everywhere. Like oh, it's, God. Yeah, like it's like fucking Funhouse or something, which is a reference that UK fans will get for sure. But like it's 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 that kind of like weird, like kiddie centric. Oh, this will appeal to them. And it doesn't. And there's, there's actually quite a few things like this that we'll, we'll get to throughout this this period. We're talking about today scattered instances of whether it's wrestlers or the promotion acting like they think will get over in a way that's like silly and kind of appealing to children. It just com- makes them come off like tools. Well, and to that note, Wade Keller uh, referred to Todd Pettengill as, quote, nerdy. <laughs> Not wrong. George. Yeah, he, he didn't even call him Todd Pettengill. He said it debuted with a nerdy host. <laughs> didn't even give him the uh, dignity of a name. 
No, speaking of nerds, uh, Sean Mooney, we say goodbye to him. What a long run. When did Mooney come into the cup? Was it 88 or 89, Mooney? Something like that. He's on because he follows video Craig. I remember him being on. Yeah, he follows Craig to George. And yeah. George is there at WrestleMania 4, I Four, know, for sure, yeah. And Mooney is there by WrestleMania 5. So I, I think it's like either early 89, mid-80. Yeah, yeah, that, that Mooney comes in. So, uh, by the way, did you notice? So I guess he got married around this time period, Mooney. And hmm. he must have asked for time off. And because this is typical fucking Vince. I think this was on the last prime, the final prime times. They were doing these sketches where his honeymoon, quote unquote, honeymoon was being interrupted. Hmm. Yes. You, you just you just know that's Vince being pissed that a guy asked for time off. Uh, yeah, it's, it reeks yeah. of it, doesn't it? Like, ah, oh, OK, you're yeah. going to do that. OK, well, then here's 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 what you get in return. Yeah. Uh, speaking of tools, Ray Rougeau is in it as an announcer. He is really bad in this role. <laughs> he's like, his, his delivery where he's like so like polite is really funny to me. Like when he's just like, <laughs> the interview with Doink, <laughs> it's like when he asks him, he's like, what are you doing? You're trying to make children cry. It's like, yeah. I know. You're like, God, I hope Doink makes you cry, Ray. He is awful in that role. <laughs> God. All right, that's television, I think. Um, that, that's the birth of Raw, the first several months on Raw, kind of the general aesthetic we covered. We're going to get into uh, some of the angles, certainly, that take place here later on, but we've got uh, something else to hit on before we do that, Liam. We do indeed. Mick, we do indeed. Mick Makeover, we're calling this section. So uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. 1991 and 1992 were not good years for Vince McMahon. <laughs> yeah. I saw the notes. I, like, I laughed my ass off when I saw you write that there. It's just like, no shit. No shit. Yeah. They weren't good years. Okay, so we're on the same page there. All right, so in addition to the TV, he attempted, Vince, to give his own reputation a makeover. Mm. Not just, you know, you know, TV looks different. Well, can, maybe it's time that we look at Vince McMahon in a different light, Liam, and all the great charity work he does. Some of this was absolutely shameless okay uh let's start with the headlock on hunger a show at madison square garden january 29th which drew 12,000 uh, included a 10 bell salute to andre show lasted three hours and 45 minutes and included a 15 minute segment where wwf champion flanked by all the heels and all the faces presented with the red cross with a giant one hundred thousand dollar check uh, this was towards the uh situation that was going on in somalia at the time, um, it was serious. There was like warlords. There was, it was famine. It was, it was a very yeah, it serious. Good. It wasn't good at all. I don't know if we want to get too political here. We could, you know, of course, take a moment to recognize how pathetic both of our countries have treated the continent of Africa through the years. Just really, you talk about shameful. Oh okay? yeah. But, but the um, WWF is here. The WWF is here to to fix this issue. The WWF cares for Africa and here to present the check. Was Akeem and Sava Simba, I believe. Okay, no, they did not. No, those <laughs> characters did not present the check. It was, I thought, a nice gesture that had like on hunger to do that. This wasn't so bad. I mean, this. Uh, uh, now I'll tell you what was kind of shameful. We turned to the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine, March 1993. <laughs> there is an article called "Kamala: An African Perspective" by Ed Ricciuti, your buddy. <laughs> Do I even need to read the words, or would you rather use your <laughs> imagination? To this editor, the change that has occurred in Kamala, the Ugandan giant, yes, he's gone babyface, everybody, 
has a very personal impact. Africa is a familiar place, which I first visited on assignment in 1974 and many times thereafter. The changes that have swept what was known as the dark continent and is now a very violent continent have reshaped entire societies for better or worse. Mm. And Rachuli, what are we doing? (laughs) Kamala has personified the dark side of Africa, raised in conditions where force and brutality were the norm. He knew no better. His enormous size and strength enabled him to prosper. What are we doing here? (laughs) So basically, they want want to Africa is just filled with heel Kamalas because of the situation. Yeah, here's here's your check. (laughs) Now please return to the nation's locker room. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, all right, that's one thing the WF did. There's a lot of, and this started in late 92. We touched on it. There were some videos outlining the charity work that the various WF wrestlers were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they took it to a new level on the March 15th episode of Raw, which had a video featuring all the charity work and good things that Vince McMahon had done in his role as president and CEO of Titan Sports, trying to turn him babyface after all the lawsuits and controversy. Dave Meltzer notes, there's no crime in doing PR work, but when you use it as a promotional tool, it's not actually charity work. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I mean, you know, that kind of persists to this day. You know, where do you think that a company mascot and daughter at the time, Stephanie McMahon, uh, <laughs> pulled that whole philanthropy is the future of marketing uh, bullshit on her Twitter? It's how brands are going to win, I remember she said. That, that's yeah, a very good point. By the way, it was interesting. At the end of that video, it Stopped on a still of Vince McMahon, whose teeth were a little yellow looking, by the way. Yeah. Had some work done, that man. Yeah, okay. Maybe that was just being it. But anyway, it says president and CEO of Titan Sports. Like, was that the first time they publicly acknowledged on purpose Vince as being, like, the person who runs WWF? I'm trying to think if there's anything before. I don't think there is. I but, guess the uh, only time is like, but even then it was like it was unspoken. Like well, I'm trying to think like Vince when he did the speech in front of the sign with the, talking about drugs. Uh, this is yes, drug free. That's the only thing yeah. I can think of where it might have been alluded to. But I don't know if they actually called him that. I have to go and look at it again. Yeah, that is, so so I, that was uh, interesting. Uh, the reason Vince, so they show this video. Vince was not on that episode. Of Raw. That was the episode where Bartlett did the Vince impression with Gorilla Bobby. The reason Vince wasn't on Raw on March 15th, Liam, is he was being honored by the Michael Landon Foundation for being a philanthropist. Vince then does another tribute to himself on the March 22nd Raw with a 12-minute video to open the show. Yes, folks. They opened Raw with a 12-minute video documenting Vince McMahon being honored at the Michael Landon Foundation. Uh, Dave Meltzer said... There are no limits, are there? <laughs> so, this is uh, uh, this is great. A one-hour roar, by the way. You need to put that. Twelve minutes of a one-hour roar. Yeah, and I want to clarify something for the listeners because they're probably going to hear this and say, oh, I want to go back and check this out. It is not on the network. You guys have the network. We have Peacock. It is not on that version. That version of Raw is like 30 minutes. Yeah. So scribbed on our uh, side, too. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I actually, I think we found it on Daily Motion or whatever. I know you've got some thoughts on that video. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's 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 first of all, it's Hulk Hogan being Hulk Hogan. Yeah. And whenever he does that on a stage, it's always something to behold because he's like they like showing this this video. It's like Cindy Crawford's there, and there's like some actual like real names of merit there. 
And then, like, here's Hulk Hogan taking a moment to get up on the stage and complain about how there's not enough food at the benefits. And if there's any more that anyone's got, send it to his table, which I'm really glad. I hope, anyway, they didn't say that during the headlock on hunger because that really oh, really inappropriate. And then he segues into schmoozing Vince so hard, so hard that I could see Beefcake Envious from the third row. Vince, <laughs> and, 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 oh, he's, he's my hero. He's my hero. And it's like, fucking hell. Laying it on as thick as you like. And then Vince McMahon gets up on the stage and he tries to show humility. This is after, by the way, they've shown a video of like the Nasty Boys licking people. No, no, sorry, the Bushwhackers licking people and the Nasty Boys just, you know, doing their thing. Uh, Pity City. Yeah, Pity City to some of these poor kids. Um, Vince gets on the stage and he shows his humility and, you know, I'm unworthy of this award. It's really about the superstars. And yeah, you can see Vince like simulating human activity by at one point taking a very notable second to crane his neck and somehow enunciate swallowing a gulp of emotion. <laughs> kind of like that Man, scene that in Beyond so the Map where he, he takes a sip of water and then chews it. Yes. What a weirdo. So, okay. <laughs> we, we, we know that this is an effort to rehabilitate the company's image after a, a pretty dire 1991 and 1992 off the screen. But it's also in response to what is still an ongoing U.S. government investigation of Titan mm. Sports. We mentioned this in the last episode. And it's ramped up at this point. Liam. Meltzer says no one knows exactly what the government's looking for or where the extensive questioning sessions are leading. Even more wrestlers were brought in for questions in New York, in addition to the dozens that have already been interviewed. The only thing that Dave knows for sure at this point is that it has to do with drugs. Safe bet. Yeah, you don't say, Dave. Uh, but thank you for going out on a limb there. Yes, I uh, understand <laughs> WrestleMania will involve wrestling as well. Uh, but, but yeah, so uh, this is something, you, folks, we may not hit on in parts two or part three. You're going to want to file some of the stuff away because, uh, spoiler alert, it comes to a head in part four. <laughs> and it does, in fact, have to do with drugs. Yeah, yeah, it does, in fact, have to do with drugs. Uh, somebody who does not want to wait, though, to talk on this subject was apparently the honky-tonk man who called up the John Arezzi radio show. I've got to get audio of this. And he he wanted to talk about the U.S. Justice Department's investigation of Vince McMahon. Arezzi freaks out, apparently, and tries to get him off the subject as soon as possible. Dave says no one, other than honky-tonk man, presumably, wants to talk about this story in the business. There's heaps of paranoia about where it's going and who is involved. Dave thinks it might be a big story or it might be nothing. Well, again, spoiler alert, it turns out to be a big story. <laughs> it's a big story. Honky, clearly pissed about Bob, uh, Bartlett's impression on, uh, on Raw of Elvis Presley. <laughs> there we go. That must have been what it was. Okay. I wonder if that's why he was brought in originally as an expert on the subject. Well, <laughs> so we remember Titan Gate, if you go back to 1992, mm-hmm. all the uh, bad media that Vince McMahon gets. Well, he goes on the offensive here in 1993, Mr. Yes. McMahon, suing both Phil Mushnick of the New York Post and Geraldo Rivera. Here we go. Good stuff yes. coming. Yeah, so this is just almost comical. I swear that all of this happened, folks. <laughs> uh, in the case of Mushnick, Titan alleges, quote, defendants have repeatedly and viciously defamed McMahon by direct statement 
or provable innuendo. Mushnick has written or orally stated McMahon. That's weird. Yeah, I didn't like that either. Orally stated McMahon was a child abuser, a child molester, homosexual criminal, sexual offender, a liar in general, a man practicing (laughs) the art of deception, cold-blooded, devoid of honor and propriety, a member of organized crime, and worse than the fictional character Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) <laughs> First of all, if he actually that, that said that in one go. Yeah, that's what Titan says was told about them. Now, Phil Mushnick's response to the suit, Liam? Vince McMahon is a well-known liar. I am not. The suit is <laughs> full of shit, and I'm waiting for my chance to prove it in court, which is just amazing. I absolutely love If If, again, I don't know if he actually did say all those things. I actually don't remember if he called him a child molester. <laughs> That seems well, imagine I mean, a man practiced in the art of deception. Well, that is true. I will say, but the, the Hannibal Lecter thing was. I, I I don't know if they said he was worse. I think there was like a Hannibal Lecter reference in one of the articles that that, that uh, Mushnick wrote about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after all after all of that, what they're actually going to come back with is, you know, that's that's all actually completely inaccurate. Vincent Mann is as bad as Hannibal Lecter. He didn't say that he, he's not actually worse. But all the other stuff. Yeah. I love how a liar in general. <laughs> like, yeah, right, right after the child molested, that's what cracked me up. And then in the middle of there, a member of organized crime. I guess Dino should have uh, should have known better. Yeah, cold blooded. I mean, I think Vince would say he's cold blooded. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so Mushnick, yeah, the suit's full of shit. He says now Vince and Linda, uh, they have a lawsuit against Geraldo and several others mm. involved in Geraldo's show. The lawsuit claims that the show was attempting to extort $5 million from Vince in order to keep the Rita Chatterton story quiet. Mm. Uh, from the quote, Vince McMahon has suffered severe emotional distress and or other injuries, including but not limited to mental anguish, anger, embarrassment, shame, humiliation, depression, and loss of sleep. I thought he didn't sleep. <laughs> yeah. You said, yeah, damn, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> and also, he has no shame, so we know that's complete shit, too. Yes, just a, a blatant lie, I think you would say. Yes, absolutely a blatant lie. Um, <laughs> Geraldo's publicist replied to the suit. Would you like to say what uh, Geraldo's publicist <laughs> noted here? We repeatedly, he says, asked Mr. McMahon to appear on the program to counter the allegations, and he repeatedly refused. Okay. That's certainly a different side of the story, is it not? Sure is. Sure is. Our our good friend Jerry McDevitt that enters the program. He's in. Yes. uh, And he has the following to say. Geraldo told Vince, quote, we've got a woman here who claims you raped her. Do you want to come on and deny that? Jerry then says, what kind of choice is that? It gives it dignity if he appears. And it's bullshit. Bashing Vince McMahon has become a cottage industry. Yeah, you know what else gives it dignity, Vince? When you pay the woman millions of dollars. Yes, fast forward 30 years later. Yeah. This story has, has sort of sorted itself out. Right? I wondered, that, was, did that exactly what happened? Geraldo Rivera <laughs> dials up Vince McMahon. Hey, Vince, we got a woman here who claims you raped her. You want to come on? <laughs> That is no way that it happened like that. Stop it, Jerry. Um, Jerry McDevitt also claimed that the damage caused by all the libelous things being said about them will cost the company millions. Liam, your thoughts? Yeah. uh, So, I mean, oddly, you know, despite the millions in damages caused by Phil Mushnick's uh, campaign of terror against the WF in New York, 
this is actually like one of the few markets that does not see a plummet in the gate totals compared you know, in 1992, which is again a key thing. Business, we were talking about this. We talked about all the houses. People can go back and listen to all the areas around America and all the shows that got cancelled. New York's not among them, really. I think maybe there was one that got cancelled in New York, as I remember. But like, yeah, I, I, I find that uh, this is, uh, yeah, there's a lot to this. I'll, I'll go off on one in a second, I think. Okay, and just so we're all clear here, the the millions in damages is like a uh, a tongue in cheek reference that that Meltzer made that you mm. know th- th- they're referencing oh millions of dollars in damages are being caused by Phil Mushnick and yet Phil oh, yeah. writes in a New York paper and and New York is is not seeing uh, necessarily the kind of like you would expect like if Mushnick's reach had that big of it would be New York where WF was hit the hardest but that's kind of where they stayed the strongest I guess well yeah summarize yeah. Uh, anyway, we're going to close this section with this doozy. Geraldo Rivera's response. If you thought Phil Mushnick saying Vince McMahon is a liar, I am not. Well, how about Geraldo, bu- Geraldo busting out with, quote, it is a mark of honor to be sued by the WWF. I will body slam them in court. I swear I did not fucking make that up. <laughs> that is such a Geraldo response, too, by the way, for anybody who uh, over here has, has not seen much of the gentleman. That's a very... Uh... The sensational nature of his reaction is kind of perfect for what he is. I, I mentioned this. I mentioned this on the show. He's from Cleveland. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I saw him in the airport. I, I think I even mentioned that on the show once. Very short guy. <laughs> Real short guy. Another reason Vince didn't like him, I'm sure. Yeah, I know. Him and, him and Gargano would be an even matchup. Yeah. Hey, okay. There's, there's, Our... there's a lot to say here, Kyle, about all this stuff. There really is. But, there is there is but so, there's we have not even really gotten to the, the actual like the angles and the meat and potatoes what the wrestlers are doing my god we need to get to this i think so file all of that stuff away that we just talked about with the mcmahon uh, uh reputation stuff because we're going to be coming back to it at the end of 1993 where yes. it really ramps up but we have a coming and going section that is absolutely massive here, Liam. It will be the bulk of this episode. Unprecedented movement, uh, really, uh, for this promotion uh, in a three-month span. Particularly when it's the months leading up to WrestleMania. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, just continuing with the, the overriding theme that we're talking about for 1993, where there is just... It just does not look this like the same promotion as 1992. And, and this, obviously, uh, perpetuates that for sure. Okay. And let's start with the big one. Okay, I know that this is something people probably been looking forward to, and they're saying, "When are you gonna get this? When are you gonna get this?" Well, Ric Flair is let out of his contract seven months Unbelievable. early. Unbelievable. A rather abrupt exit, dare I say, Mister O'Rourke. He jobs in a loser leaves town match to Mister Perfect on the taped January twenty uh, ninth episode of Raw. I think that's is it twenty ninth? I think no, it's eighteenth. I think it's the eighth. They tape it on the maybe no, no, they, sorry, they tape it on the eighteenth or nineteenth. They tape it on the twenty fifth. On the 25th. I have the wrong date there. In the notes. Yeah. So yeah, that's taped on the 18th, airs on the 25th. My apologies. That's right. Anyway, there was blood in the match, which is considered four-star-ish at the time. Mm. People, it got, it got a, uh, uh, strong reviews in the newsletters. Uh, but that episode, despite Wade Keller saying it will become a collector, or, or is now saying that Raw will be a favorite of, uh, tape collectors, only a 2.6 rating, uh, for that particular episode of Raw, despite being built well the previous week, like we talked about with the, the brawling, um, perfect and flair both wrestling. Yeah, yeah. kind of interesting there. No, it was no typhoon and doink to the to the masses, clearly. 
No, no. I yeah, I mean this is very very abrupt in how it comes off. Now Flair, I believe it was like the end of the year when Flair tells Vince he wants to go, and it's a quick turnaround. There's like it's less than three weeks before, yeah, before he's completely out the door from when he says it. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the match itself because I, for the longest time I had like my, like a real stick up my ass about this match because. I, uh, I this match was aired on a Coliseum video, and I can't remember which one it was. Um, and when I rented I, the video, oh shit, I have it too. I think is it like Invasion of the Body Slammers or something? I don't know if it's that because the, 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 I think there's a Flare Perfect match on that that's not this one. But there is another there is another uh, video that has the, this flight this Flare Perfect match from Raw. <laughs> I feel it's the same one that has Slick and Kamala bowling. I definitely own that video. <laughs> that's I, I own the, the Body Master Slammers. Cup, yes. But yeah, so, but the point is, like, for whatever reason, on the video that I rented as a kid in 1994, the video, you know, this will happen with VHS, is where the video was just, like, static. Like, the, mm-hmm. the, the part of the tape was ruined or something. Like, the rest of the video worked fine, but when it came to this match, there was static all over the screen. I couldn't see what was going on. I could just hear the audio where these guys are talking about how amazing this match is. And, and Heenan and Vince, you do the commentary because, um, Savage isn't there. They are just playing their like they are they are talking this match up like it's incredible. Their energy is fantastic, but I didn't get to see the match and I was kind of bummed out about it. So fast forward about five years later, I finally see it in 1999, and I've got this vision in my head about this match being this classic because I've heard people talk about it as well in the intervening years. And when I finally saw it, I was like, ah, you know, considering that I thought this was going to be a classic, this just is like a good Ric Flair match. And I was not, because of that, I kind of was like, ah, I don't know, I think this is a bit, you know, I'm a bit disappointed now. I thought this was going to be this, like, special, all-time great match, and it was just, you know, it was merely really good. Well, I went years with that opinion until I watched it back more recently, and then watched it again three days ago as well. It's like, you know what, I really have no right to have this feeling with this match being, like, disappointing. This is a good match, and the crowd's into it, but I kind of want to know what you thought. couple picks. It's WrestleFest 93. Is the Coliseum release that it's on? It was not hyped as being on that video though. Mm. Like because Flair's gone, I'm assuming they just didn't want to like. I think they mention it. Like I'm, I actually have like the master, yeah, copy of that tape. Um, like like I bought it. Like we got it from a, a video store or something, or I don't know if we bought it off eBay, the original, whatever. But um, it is wrestled very much like a match that was thrown together. <laughs> at the last minute where guys yeah. are wrestling with their careers on the line, but there's like this, like this sense of, they didn't have a lot of time to prepare for it. Right. Like it, it feels like it feels like a match that was thrown together in spontaneous fashion for a show that is, you know, purported to be live. It was taped. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's not like a classic flair match. Um, it, it's, it's like three. I, I think it's good. It's like it's it's higher than three stars. Yeah, I'd say but, so. But I mean, in terms of like 1993 Raw matches, and, and we're not going to talk. We'll talk about this one in the next episode. It's not as good as like Sean and Marty. No, yeah, on, that's on, what, the, that's May, on the May 17th episode for sure or whatever. Um, but I don't know. Like, I mean, three and a quarter at least. I would say. Yeah. Um, it, it, I remember, you know. At the time, as someone who, and you were as well by this point, like watching WWF in real time, it felt like such a big deal. Like yeah. the idea that two guys would agree to put their career on the line 
and then wrestle the following week. Uh, although they had done the same angle a couple years earlier with Garvin and Valentine, but that didn't feel like a big deal at all. It was <laughs> Garvin Shocking. and Valentine. Although uh, they had great house show matches for sure, but this felt like a pretty big deal. I, I I don't know. Like I think it's it's a good match. It's not a great match. Yeah, I I, I, I looking at it now, it is good. With neutrality, it's a good match. I do. Uh, it's a weird one since the first half of the match really feels like, God damn, this is going to be really good, and then it kind of like really tapers off a little bit in the middle. And yeah, there's a couple of like messy parts, which is yeah, no big deal. But like, um, you know, perfect bleeds. I can imagine being in the moment would really really help. Yeah, and, and blood was a big deal, obviously, yes. at this time. I mean, so it, it felt like, I mean, you just didn't see it often, obviously, blood. So that's good. That's going to enhance, um, you know, the match. But, um, yeah, didn't they just like do it, it, by the way? Sorry, just to cut you off, but didn't they just do it at the Clash with Shane Douglas as well? Yeah, you're right. They do. They do at that Clash. Yeah. Um, that's uh, what Clash twenty two. Twenty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Against the Hollywood Blondes. Um, th- there were spots in the match where it felt like they were not on the same page. I know that was an issue with uh, Flair and Bret Hart mm. as well. Um, so here's the deal. Okay, people are like, "What the hell? Ric Flair wanted out. He's leaving. What's going on here?" Yeah. Okay, it was reported at the time that Flair was going to be moved down the card and do jobs for Tatanka. It's fucking insane. <laughs> insane I, now, now, I, I don't know if dave drew that conclusion or not because it's like oh he'd be doing jobs for the third baby face from the top and then like dave i think maybe like made it into like tatanka i don't know if there was because i looked like in the history of wwf page like if was there any tatanka rick flair matches and there were i think there was like one in 92 and it did do it like so um yeah, I don't know if it's yeah, specifically if, Tatanka, but he was going to be jobbing to, like, number three baby faces. I yeah, guess. he was going to be phased down. He was moving away from the top. This, if if he did say you're going to be doing jobs to Tatanka, that's real shades of Vince giving Bret Hart a pitch to stay in the company in 97 that involves losing four straight times to Shawn Michaels. Yeah, yeah like, really, that's like, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, Rick, we'd love to have you, but can you can you put over Tatanka? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, so, Rick. We still want you to be important now. Please, uh, if you could lay down for El Matador, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Now, what was not known at the time, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but was reported you know, in later years, Flair had a clause in his contract when he signed back in 91 that if he was unhappy with how he was being booked, such as being suggested to lose to Tataka, he could leave. Hmm. WCW, by the end of 92, we should take a moment to talk about what a cesspool WCW was at this time um, under Bill Watts, who was on his way out the door. But WCW really wanted Ric Flair back because they had aired some like old Ric Flair matches and those had done a better rating than their actual TV. That's right. Time, which, which is like <laughs> speaks volume. So they wanted Flair back in the fold. Flair wanted to go back because he knew he would be on top there. And that was kind of the deal. Um, why he wanted to leave. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but um, you know, it's funny. It's reported, Liam, at the time that like, oh, Vince and Flair, they're all cool. Flair's like, yeah, I want to leave, and Vince's like, okay, yeah, you can leave. That's so cool. professional. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's and people are like, wow, my God, Vince McMahon, he's just cool with it. Well, Titan sure dragged its ass giving Flair his official release oh, because although they give him the verbal release, they 
the official release in writing does not come until after the final WCW taping before Super Brawl 3, so they can never really promote Flair as appearing on that pay-per-view, WCW. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting, and uh, you can address that if you'd like. But my big question here is, what do we think about Ric Flair leaving at this point? Yeah. How he left and his WWF run in general. Was there still meat on the bone? Okay, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot to, to talk about. So let's, let's get to uh, a few of these things. Uh, in terms of, like they're dragging their ass on Flair's release, didn't this is like, one of the times they pulled their bullshit where like they'd send the release but it wasn't signed, and then they'd tell them and they'd send it back and it wasn't notarized. And like it's all these little things. But it's like, are you just trying to like trip them up so that you can sue them or some bullshit like that? Like why are you? Yeah, it's it's, it's dirty dirty business. Was there still meat on the bone? I mean. When you look at this big picture, given that note that you mentioned about having a clause in the contract where he could leave if he was unhappy, combined with everything we've talked about in 1992, it feels to me pretty clear that after only 18 months, Vince has decided he no longer wants Ric Flair in his WWF, which is mm. kind of amazing. There was meat on the bone for sure in the sense that, as I was kind of alluding to before, when we were talking about Raw being kind of more nwa wcw ish yeah um the, the disney idea being a wwf thing this kind of environment the raw show is a lot more of like flair's wheelhouse to show how good he can actually be that scene that builds up the loser leaves raw uh, sorry loser leaves wwf match that they film where like perfect and flair come out brawling they get separated flair comes out and hijacks the scene and basically challenges perfect to the match where the loser leaves the wwf Halfway through, he goes and he just starts messing around with the fans at ringside, comes back. It's total vintage flair. Kisses really... a girl in the crowd. Yeah, that's it. Kisses the girl. It's a great it's like, promo. It's, and it's really good. It's like, this is the flair that I think people thought, because uh, it's worth pointing out here that there was very much a myth, as I, as we've, a term we've used before, where, oh, if this guy goes to the WWF, he'll be used better. They use you right there. You know, Vince knows how to market you. And we had seen over the previous two years, a lot of these guys that have come in, like the Road Warriors, it turns out it wasn't actually true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like in terms of being more meat on the bone, there was more meat on the bone in terms of now Flair has an environment that's good for him, but there's not that many guys for him to work with that he hasn't already if they're not building around him. Taker was kind of a, a big one. There was another notable big name we're going to talk about later on that they could have actually finally got to. But in totality, you can't help but look at Flair's run, at least I wouldn't think so, as anything but a big disappointment, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, this was the time where people fantasizing for years, again, oh, if he goes there. Flair's great now, but I mean, just imagine what would happen if he went there and they used him and what would happen. And then all you really got that you would really want that was actually as special as people were probably envisioning was the Rumble 92, which <laughs> is which I think is a big part of the reasons we talked about why that match has such an incredible um, gravity to people who watched it at the time. And, and I mean, you can watch it and see the gravity. It comes, it, it, tra- it translates through time. Absolutely. But I really, I, I really think that that's a big part of the reason why the Rumble 92 stands out. It's not just the performances. It's not just, it's the context of flair that, as you've said before, the NWA guy going to the WWF, doing his shtick, and being better than everybody else. And that's how it comes off. And I think that's what people wanted. But no big match with Hogan, after all. Business goes down during his time on top. And it's it's nuts because you really 
when you look at the way that this is executed, it's like, considering the way things are, they kneecapped themselves right before WrestleMania by letting him go now. And it's kind of, you know, it kind of like raises your eyebrows. Like, they just want him out of the way that bad. Yeah, and the, the, there's something interesting we're going to talk about, um, you, know, you know, with that release and how mm. they dragged their ass with that and let it, why they would let him go before Mania. There, there's kind of this urban legend we're going to address later yeah. on. Um, I'm also going to address later on why I think it was crazy to let him go right before Mania. I think yeah. there was a number of potential matchups they could have used to enhance that card using Ric Flair. Um, even if they could have had him do like a, a big job, um, you know, you know, the funny thing was, it, all right, let's hit on this now. So <laughs> do you, do you think, so Meltzer pointed out like Flair losing to perfect in the way he did. He kind of like looked like the chump who loses his last match on WF television. And he goes, go, goes crawling back to the second rate promotion. Do you think that that's accurate? I think it's it's absolutely fair, especially if you if if you're I mean, if you are a just a television viewer of wrestling of the previous three years, Flair leaves one company as the champion, shows up with the belt, and then gets beat and goes back, and and gets kicked out. And it, it very much comes off like uh, one side is the second rate company. Yeah, and well, and in a kayfabe sense, it's like well, he lost his way out of one company, so he just goes to work for the other one. Yeah, now, yeah. It, it's interesting because I'm going to throw out an idea later in the show about Flair. And if he was concerned about losing in that spot, it, it actually doesn't matter because remember like only Anderson who was booking, who who takes over the book when Bill Watts gets fired in WCW, like doesn't Flair mentions on one of his DVDs that only Anderson was pissed at him for doing the job to perfect on the way out. He's like, well, mm. well what can I do with you? You just did a job to Kurt Henning on television, which is like yeah. so fucking ridiculous for only Anderson to say. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting because it's like you can see people in wrestling who who think like that kind of repeating that kind of train of thought. And that's where it gets back to Dave. Yes, yes. So um, like just to go back, I remember when we talked about Flair's arrival in the promotion in late 91, I think I had framed it originally as something that I was very interested to go back and rewatch in full because like when I was a kid, like I enjoyed it because I was obviously a WWF kid much more yeah. than WCW. So it was like, Oh, well, Ric Flair, you know, Ric Flair, Oh, he's coming here. This will be cool. And you got to see a little bit of him, and you got to see what all the fuss was about. And I, I remember it, I talked about this previous on the show that like, you know, when you start, when you pick up the observer for the first time and you read Dave's thoughts, on Flair WF. Dave's very critical that it was a missed opportunity. It wasn't as good as it should have been, you know, and I think a lot of Dave's critiques stick. And I yeah. would agree with what you said that this run from Flair, while it did have the high points, the 92 Rumble certainly is an all timer. The Savage feud initially with, with the WrestleMania 8 match yep. is fucking great. But the totality of what it could have been, what people wanted versus what it was. It just didn't live up to the expectation. Maybe it, well, it could have never lived up to the expectation. I don't know because all the outside the ring stuff that was going on with this promotion was was killing it. And, you know, we've talked about in the past that had Flair shown up a year earlier, it might have been better for everybody involved. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that with, now that we've seen the end of this story, I think that not only is that 
kind of become abundantly clear, but like if you are able to shift Flair's arrival a little bit earlier, what ends up happening with Hogan wanting to just get the fuck out of Dodge, that is not the case. And I think that he's more likely to be a WrestleMania opponent than he is, uh, you know, the house show opponent that kind of doesn't really, doesn't really deliver what people want. Doesn't really get the best out of the situation. As, no, as WCW it, would later find out when they actually put it on pay-per-view. Yes, and then people can go back, by the way, listen to 91, 92. We talk about all the the, the stuff with Flair's uh, initial run and stuff and with Hogan, the house shows and whatever. We went into a lot of detail about that. Uh, Meltzer noted Flair leaving will, quote, mess up WWE's, quote, plans, WWF, pardon me, plans for a better <laughs> in-ring product, quote. Um, yeah. I don't really think that's the case. It's funny, WWF it, – had a lot of actually had probably better wrestling on a consistent basis than it ever had around this period. So well, which is ironic. And it's it's like you know that that sounds like it's a nice thing to say, but when the following week it was the Tonka versus Damian Demento <laughs> and the fans are chanting, yeah. "We want Flair." It's That's like a good point. It's like yeah, I, I mean, their plans think, for better in ring product. That's 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 nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Flair is obviously a big star, and I think it was head scratching to let him go right before mm. Mania. I've got an idea that they could have used him for. We'll get to that later on. Mm. Um, but Ric Flair's final appearance with the WWF Liam was February 10th in Dortmund, Germany. Uh, Dortmund, potentially the Bundesliga champions. We are recording this before the final weekend of German football here. Uh, <laughs> Borussia Dortmund may end Bayern Munich's run at, atop the table, their decade long run atop the table. We shall see. Uh, but Flair in Dortmund loses to Bret Hart. Uh, and this was after Hart called Flair, quote, overrated at the WrestleMania 9 press conference on January 27th. <laughs> Brett didn't even wait for him to get out the door before he starts burying him. Brett, classic actually, Brett. Classic Brett. And Brett had mentioned in his book, I was trying to like just see if there was anything about this in there. It was January 9th. So after Flair's already given his notice, but they're still working together. January 9th, they're working together and Flair, basically Brett has the idea for the finish and Flair tries to change it and starts trying to call the match. And Brett like has to like dress him down apparently in front of several wrestlers until Flair just kind of sits on the bench and he's just like, okay, well, whatever you want to do, you know, and it's like, that's kind of a, you know, an interesting little thing where like Brett's, Brett's getting tired of Flair and that probably doesn't help things either. Yeah. And uh, so Ric Flair is Um, gone from the WWF. Unbelievable. Seven months early. Who would have thought they, after all that, they let him out early and he goes back to WCW and you know their business doesn't exactly uh take off either quite frankly but uh back here in Titanland a running theme throughout 1993 throughout the series Liam is going to be us saying goodbye to guys who I'm going to say we're longtime institutions that's the mm. term I'm going to use on the card guys that you always would see on the card kind of in a you know so, at least somewhat of a significant role. You know, guys who were stars to some degree at one point or another. And, and these guys just make their exit from the promotion. It's just mass turnover in 1993. Yeah. Two such guys that we're going to start with saying goodbye uh, with here uh, that had been on the card for years here in Titan. A couple former Hulk Hogan opponents, Big Boss Man and Earthquake. Yeah, first to go. Uh, yeah, uh, both did jobs to Bam Bam Bigelow and Yokozuna. On the way out, uh, there were some other jobs they did as well. The, the Yokozuna jobs, I think, were on the house shows mostly, or they, they were dark matches at, at TV tapings. But Bossman, I know he loses to Bigelow uh, at the Royal Rumble. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Bossman and Earthquake are gone. 
They're done, yeah. So Bigelow, Bigelow and Quake do a match on TV, which is kind of, it's a good match actually. They really, you know, throwing around each other around a lot. So it's pretty, uh, pretty exciting, but it's got a weak count out finish. Certainly feels like your usual Titan protection finish, as is, uh, Bossman doing a loss to Doink. Actually, no, he beats Doink by DQ after originally losing to him after Doink does some kind of green goo in the face chicanery that airs after the Royal Rumble, um, his take before. But, uh, yeah, again, like, so, so they're kind of on their way out. Don't do, too many massive jobs on television. Yeah, um, although, although the boss man job at the Rumble, like when, when a ba- when a baby face who's been as like featured um, is featured as boss man does a job like that at the Rumble, you know he's coming towards the end. Yeah, it, it was like just for, for those who haven't seen it, boots to the face, clothesline, top rope headbutt, it's over. Yeah, I mean, I mean, baby faces just didn't job clean in this promotion unless they were on their way out the door. Yeah. And it's funny, they do protect Earthquake. Yeah, you mentioned with the count-out finish. He would be back for a cup of coffee in 94. So we could talk about him at a later date. But until the Attitude Era, this is it for the boss man. Yeah. And you thought, and, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a weird one, too, because, like, my memory's a little bit sketchy, but weren't they expecting him back and then he just bailed? I don't. I mean, he he had wanted to go to all Japan. Was was the talk? He eventually, of course, goes to WCW and yeah. by the end of the year as the boss. Man, is he big? But um, <laughs> you know, you have an interesting tidbit here that I yeah. had forgotten about, and I, I want to share it with everybody. Yeah. So there's a story again. I was looking for, for while I was thinking about Boss Man, basically telling them that like I, at least I thought that he was telling them that he was going back and he wanted a break and. Cornette, he did a, he did a shot with Cornette in Smoky Mountain in 93. Obviously they got history when he was Big Bubba Rogers and stuff like that. So they were, they were friends. And Trailer told Cornette that he wasn't going to go back to the WWF because he was convinced that McMahon was going to go to jail. All this talk in the industry that, that we just mentioned before in that McMakeover section about, you know, oh man, there's, there's an investigation going on, people being questioned. And apparently Bossman was concerned. <laughs> That the perception of his gimmick would take a massive hit as like the representative of law and order in the WWF with the boss being sent to jail, which is just fucking great. That's incredible. But yeah, I think that is true. I remember that, that like he had told Cornette about that he wasn't going back. So I don't know what Titans expectations were, but it's Mm. certainly, I mean, the way he'd been booked. I mean, they were obviously booking him that they knew he'd be gone for a while. They weren't going to be bringing him back. Obviously, I mean, they would bring a lot of these guys back, you know, um, if they were big names. I mean, we've seen like Rick Martell, like leaving, coming back, you know. But I mean, Bossman's a big name, so I I don't know if they were expecting him back. I can't remember, but um, let's show some appreciation for Ray Trailer as the big boss man and this run in general. Uh, Dave noted uh, boss man, quote, gained a lot of the weight back on his way out. I thought that was a little unfair, Dave. (laughs) Um, But your thoughts, your thoughts in general on the big boss man and his run, this run in WWF 1988 to 1993. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, he had, he was looking a little bit more plump in the, uh, the, the the big low match. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) One one of but said one of the better drawing Hogan opponents, you know, yes. during Hogan's peak run, which absolutely deserves a lot of credit. Not only that, but when he dropped a little bit of that weight, um, became a hell of a babyface, a staple babyface, very much an institution. But it does feel, with retrospect, and it's why we love doing these shows where you get the big picture. 
it feels like he has one eye on the door throughout 1992. I don't know if that's just me reading into things, but when he has like the big, remember like last time we talked about like how he had like the big long break after the nails angle and then he comes back and he immediately wants another one. Yeah. It just seemed like he, I, I he was kind of just trying to, you know, stay out of the way. Run. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he knew eventually maybe his time was up and cause the nails thing, we, we talked about this. It was interesting in the sense that, Rather than just sort of like, you know, spinning the wheel of heels and trying to figure out who Bossman hadn't worked yet, with yet in the previous couple of years, they brought a new character in specifically for him. Yeah. And, you know, OK, that wrapped up. It's like, well, who is Bossman going to work with? You know, you talked about, well, who's who could Ric Flair work with? Move who could Bossman really work for? I mean, he's been there for so long. I know. I guess they're, they're, they were bringing in a lot of new heels. Yeah, the, the, uh, I, I met, but maybe that's part of it too. He realizes that, like, okay, yeah, so new heels are in, and what the heels need to do, they need to beat baby, baby faces to yeah, get over, true. to get to the top. And we should make the point right now about Bossman and Earthquake losing two strong mid card baby faces at this time really does the Mania card no favors because they need to get some of these new heels, and there's a lot of them over. And you know, at a time like this. This is what they. This is what the babyfaces do. We get these established institutions kind of being phased down a bit, and they put the new guys over, and Bossman just kind of gets out of the way. Yeah, and obviously they were being used, um, you know, to, to put over the, the Bigelows, mm-hmm. the, the Yokozunas. But yeah, you're right. It, it felt like they wanted to put over a lot of new heels in a major way at WrestleMania Nine, and, and neither of these guys are available. By that time, you talked about Trailer being one of the great uh, Hogan opponents. It's absolutely true. I mean, we all know the top Hogan opponents of all time would be like Piper, Orndorff, Andre, and Savage, right? Yeah. Those are the yeah. – uh, you could debate the order of people, but those are the top four. Bossman is in discussion for number five. I agree. Because, like, that program, fall of 88, spring of 89, that drew big at the houses. Yeah, that was big everywhere. Big. Yeah, I mean, they, of course, there's the famous um, – in March of 89, they do the double shot in the cage in New York and Boston. Mm-hmm. They, they work two cage matches in one night. They, they they do the superplex spot that would be repeated on Saturday night's main event. But it's probably either Boss Man or, like, Kamala. Like, yeah. if, if you look at Kamala's, like, 80, like the great run Hogan and Kamala had Christmas weekend, 86. I mean, those would probably be, like, the like the battle for the... The league contenders, yeah. Yeah, for the, the fifth best Hogan opponent. Um. But yeah, Bossman is gone, and, and, and he's not going to be the the first one. Him and Earthquake, that uh, you know, guys that we, we've been talking about for years now, that uh, say bye bye. Uh, one guy who uh, well uh, returned and then was uh, gone. So uh, hopefully he <laughs> guess uh, who? Yeah, hopefully he didn't get a locker or anything set up. Marty Jannetty uh, fired after reportedly showing up fucked up for his loss to Shawn Michaels at the Rumble. Uh, either. Michaels or Ray Stevens stooge Janetti off. I know there's some discrepancy on this. Liam, let's talk about Marty Janetti uh, getting 86 yet again. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you it's time to talk Marty Janetti, it means he's either being hired or fired, most likely. So, um, his version of events, questionable as this is, he's not the most credible source in the world, is that they'd had great matches on the house shows the week leading to the Rumble. And Jack Lanza had called Vince the day before saying that this match was going to be like the best match you've ever seen. It's amazing. And then when the match happens, which Marty was like, you know, the match was completely different because Sherry was involved and we had to factor that in. It changed the, the dynamic completely. 
Vince calls them over and is like massively disappointed apparently with this match and just tells them that he doesn't think that it was it was good enough for what he wanted. And then Marty's like bummed out and he kind of walks away and Sean asks to speak to Vince alone. And then Janetta gets fired the next day and he thinks that Sean in that conversation puts the heat on him and just said that he was fucked up and that he had to leave him through the whole thing. The Observer, it should be noted, says that Janetti also passed out in the dressing room the next night in San Jose, which Stevens stooges off. And at that point, probably you know, if, if Sean said something and then Steven said something or one or the other did, either way, he's done. Although, interestingly enough, Janetti's story is that when you fast forward a few months, Kurt Hennig called him from... He'd been in a limousine with Vince... And when they were talking about this, Hennig had mentioned to Vince that Sean passed out from Somers the night before the Rumble and that he'd had to call 911 in a panic. And when Vince heard that, Janetti got hired back and given the Intercontinental title, which is an interesting... Uh, wow! Yeah, there was a lot, and we'll get to that in uh, the part two, certainly, because, yeah, Marty gets rehired. This, you know, this return didn't last long, and his firing didn't last long. It turns out there was a lot of things at play uh, that l- led to this firing not lasting long. There was some heat on Ray Stevens, apparently, with some of the boys, because... Uh, <laughs> uh, you were one of us! <laughs> yes, you're not supposed to stooge off uh, a fellow uh, wrestler uh, to the office, but, you know, I don't mind the Royal Rumble match. You know, I know Vince didn't like it, but... Janetti's Mar- ring gear was atrocious, a far cry oh, from the glorious Guns N' Roses t-shirt he returned in. But I, I think it's like, I don't know, it's it's like a three-plus star match. Yeah, it is Maybe good. Close- yeah, I like it. Janetti's ring gear looks like it's made out of toilet paper. It's not good. It's poor. It's poor. It's it's bad stuff. The Rumble, It's a good match. I wonder if there's just like the, some weird little things. There is like a very... There's a point in the match where, like, Sean... Because he's working the shoulder mm-hmm. for, like, a part of the match. And there's a part where Janetti gets, like, rammed into the post. And his right shoulder gets rammed and he gets he comes up holding the left. And it's, like, something as small and subtle as that. I wonder if, like, that's, like, the thing where Vince hates it. Yeah, or, I mean, you mentioned that um, Lanza said it was going to be amazing. The, the uh, newsletter reports backed up what Jack Lanza was saying. Like, yeah. But, uh, both Wade and Dave were saying that these guys were killing at the house shows, Sean and Marty. Um, Janetti did one TV match where he was managed by Sherry. It was taped before the Rumble. Um, Sherry, I want to talk about her because you mentioned how she yeah. kind of factored in the match and, and was a different thing. Uh, she's a key factor in that role, but she was getting booed despite a baby face turn. Yeah, it's kind of a... <laughs> It's a t- it's a tough one because like the babyface th- this would have been great in many circumstances, but I feel like it was kind of I always feel like this was too soon and kind of in the way of the Genetti story. You know what? That's a great point because it's sort of two stories converging and they're like um uh what do they call that? Like strange bedfellows or something. I don't know if I'm using yeah. the right term, but like, you know, like Sherry has sheet with heat with Sean and Marty has heat with Sean. And so it's like, let's kind of like pair them together. But it was sort of like two independent stories. Yeah. You know, because I mean like Marty and Sean didn't need the Sherry deal. They had the barbershop angle. They could call back on. They were former partners. It didn't need Sean's former manager. You know, who was like a lover scorned. Yeah. And, and, and she, like, 
okay, so she got hit in the face with a mirror, but like she's done nothing redeeming. And she'd been booed for so long. It's Sharon. Yeah, I mean, she, and she was Sharon, great. Yeah, and she doesn't work as a baby face. We'll, we'll talk about that more as mm-hmm. 93 goes on. I, I don't think she works as a baby face character at all. I did like at the Rumble when, because uh, so Sherry fucks up at the finish of the Royal Rumble and, and Sean winds up rotating and Sherry runs to the back screaming hysterical <laughs> and Gene Okerl is like, damn it, Sherry! <laughs> be, that's that. he calls her hysterical. Yeah, hysterical. Yeah, you're hysterical. Damn it, Sherry. <laughs> uh, anyway, second year in a row, Gene misses out on a potential Mania match with his former partner. Yeah, sorry, Marty. Back to the Indies for you. Actually, you know what? I don't think I've ever told you the story about uh, my friend's encounter with Marty Janetti at an indie show. Oh, no. That's <laughs> great. So the, over here, it's it's kind of traditional for, um, you know, these indie shows to have like a raffle. Like, you know, people pay like for a little ticket. They, you know, they do a, a, a tumbler. Somebody pulls it out and you win like some random thing, right? Happens all the time. And my friend won the raffle, and his prize that he won was a bottle of Jack Daniels. So, after the show's finished, Marty Janetti shows his face, and he's hanging, and he just comes straight up to my my friend, who's won the bottle, and he's just hanging out with the boys. He goes, hey guys, can I just, you know, I just want to take a picture, you know, you want, do you want a picture or anything? So he, like, as they're taking the picture, he takes the bottle of Jack Daniels, and he's holding it for the picture. And then after they take the picture, he just goes, okay, thanks, guys, and walks off with a bottle of Jack Daniels. Okay, that is unbelievable. <laughs> I love that, that is story. unbelievable that that happened. Uh, <laughs> well, well uh, Marty Gennetti out of one picture uh, with you guys, and he's out of the picture of the WWF now. And with that being the case, uh, Tatanka, still undefeated. <laughs> Uh, he slides into the role of number one contender for the IC title, and he's going to work Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 9. Yes. Tatanka gets pinfall victories over Michaels in both a singles, which is a non-title match, and a six-man match on Raw. It's Tatanka and uh, who is the Nasty Boys against Shawn yeah. and the Beverly's, I think. Yeah. Uh, Dave Meltzer writes in The Observer, expect Tatanka to be the IC champion by the summer. Nope, and thank God. Yeah, absolutely, thank God. It feels very... I mean, you know, this is the best Tatanka looks. Because he's there with Shawn Michaels and Shawn's selling for him huge. And his reactions do pick up because Shawn, but it's because of Shawn's heat. And it's like, it's very clear in the build that this is Shawn's car that's being driven and Tonka's along for the ride. And that there is so much more potential with Shawn as champion, so much more upside and so many more things that you can do that we haven't done yet. That would have been just a poor choice. No, Tatanka is just, yeah, no good. And and there's going to be a lot to be said. I'm actually going to say something in a little bit about Tatanka and this whole, like, oh, the undefeated Native American and Mm -hmm. how the writing was really on the wall for Tatanka because they just didn't want to give him a serious push. But they wanted to keep him undefeated because they knew he was dead when he was no longer undefeated, which is the case. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Shawn Michaels, by the way, now singing his own entrance music now that Sherry's no longer with him. Dave Meltzer says... We found the one thing he can't do well. <laughs> that entrance song would stick for a very long time with Shawn Michaels singing. William. Still, still, he's unbelievable how this has lasted. But it's, uh, you know, it's got its charm. It's a, it's a song that, like, absolutely doesn't work as a babyface song, which is why it's, like, just weird when he comes out to it. But I do, you know, when Shawn Michaels is a prick heel and he has that song, it, it's, it's perfect. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was, I think people just accepted it because it's been in a song for so long in the 2000s. Yeah, but it it really did fit. Like I remember, uh, Chad uh, would always be like, "They got to get rid of this song." Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Some, maybe some people I think you know just like 
it's memories. They just always want that to be a song. So it'd be weird if they came up with something like some gen- It's not worth changing because you know they would have them come up with some just generic 2000s rock song. Yeah. Like at, le- at least it's like unique. At least they actually put some thought into these entrance songs back during this oh, that's time. It. They cared yeah. about it. They, 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 they absolutely cared about the song reflecting the personality. And it's like, this is perfectly cool. He's going to sing his own song saying that he's a sexy boy. Well, Shawn Michaels' entrance saw it, Sexy Boy, it lasts like 20 years, basically, Liam. Uh, you know what did not last 20 years? <laughs> Lance Cassidy's run in the WWF. Uh, he quit in early January. Uh, I think that took about three months. Yeah, if that. Yeah, and Terry Taylor, uh, not terrific. Uh, he becomes an announcer. So uh, two guys <laughs> whose runs did not last long with this company. Neither were missed. I will say, yep. though, well, just to go back to Janetti, so that's three key baby faces they've lost now within the space of the first month. Yeah, three key baby faces and Lance Cassidy. Um, <laughs> all right. A clear beneficiary, I'm glad you referenced Janetti, because a clear beneficiary of the Janetti and Cassidy departures was Max Moon, a.k.a. Mm. Paul Diamond, of course. Because he took over their dates on the house shows. Diamond was going to be fired otherwise. Uh, he still ends up getting let go. Uh, with, uh, here's a funny story, and you're going to top it with an even funnier one. But <laughs> Max Moon returns to work the first Monday Night Raw taping. I mentioned at the top uh, that he wrestles Shawn Michaels. Yeah. And that was apparently to the shock of everyone that he worked that show. Because apparently there was a personal problem between Paul Diamond and another wrestler. And that other wrestler is, of course, Tatanka. Because Paul Diamond was nailing his wife. Tatanka's wife, that is. Yes. <laughs> Tatanka was not upset that Paul Diamond was nailing his own wife. No, no, no. He was, he was very upset. Apparently, they, they'd been having an affair for a little while. And then as his, uh, as his wife was leaving Paul Diamond's hotel, she got into a car crash. And uh, when she had to explain where she was and why she was there, it, it all came out and uh, the shit hit the fan. The Max Moon suit was a dead giveaway, I guess. Um, (laughs) Okay, so the other guy, so you said this, so at the time it wasn't known, but um, so when Moon works uh, Raw, you know, there's this problem that exists between him and, quote, another wrestler. Everyone thinks Moon's fired. The other guy was told by the office, and this is Tatanka, of course, that Diamond was fired and the matter was settled, but no one at the time actually told Diamond he was fired. So he went and had his knee scoped with the time off uh, being given to him for that, and he returns to put over Michaels on the first Raw. So yeah. he didn't know. He, so Paul Tatanka was told Paul Diamond was fired. Everyone thought Paul Diamond was fired, but Paul Diamond didn't know he was fired. So he throws on the old outer space costume and he puts Shawn Michaels over his old AWA rival on the debut episode of Raw. <laughs> and also just just keeps showing up because he's in the Royal Rumble. And I believe that there, there, there was a situation at the Rumble where Tatanka just said, you better put this match together in such a way where we're never in the ring together because there's going to be a fucking problem if, there, if we are. And he ends, up being go- he ends up being gone two weeks after that. Yeah. Uh, t- you know, talk about anything can happen to the World Wrestling Federation, Liam. How about a guy from outer space nailing a Native American's wife? <laughs> I mean, that, I that, that, see that, that before. That is, I mean, that is, I mean, a new level for this promotion. My God. Paul Diamond banging Tatanka's wife. Unbelievable, huh? Um, well, <laughs> from the uh, penthouse to the outhouse we go. Uh, three 1991 arrivals who never amounted to jack shit. Yeah. Berserker, Repo Man, and Skinner are all gone. Much to your delight, I'm sure. 
Meltzer said Berserker cut his hair and went back to selling cars. Is that true? I I I could I I don't think we see when does he do anything after this? I mean I know he goes to WCW in like '99 for I fucking no '98. It's like one of the first Thunder appearances. That's it. It's '98. It's when '98 when they bring in like Enos and Bloom and Chris Gennetti. Adams. Genetti surprisingly is available <laughs> during that period. Yeah, all those guys, Chris Adams, they all get, get like a there's like a a new talent initiative, if you will, of people who are going to do jobs on Thunder, and he's one of them. And he, he does have a haircut, so I'll give him that. Liam, I have found some things. <laughs> what have you found? I have found video of John Nord as a used car salesman. <laughs> oh, yes. We will be sharing this on the Facebook page. Uh, John Nord here. Let's go to his I could have just looked up at his uh, Wikipedia, apparently. And do, 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 do. Yeah, he absolutely uh, was a used he, he was a used car salesman. My God. John Nord. After... Uh, retiring from wrestling, Nord went back to work at his brother's auto dealership, Nord East Motors in Hilltop, Minnesota. There you have it. John Nord, you, would you buy a car from the Berserker? I would not, <laughs> frankly. Uh, a, a repo man would steal your car. He's gone as well. That's true. That's true. What? A, and, and by the way, repo's gone. Repo's <laughs> gone. Repo's gone. I'm yeah. gone. Rumble 92. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, uh, shortly after a repackage, too. Wearing a mask. Fucking, what an idea. So so his costume is terrible. His new gear is, is somehow makes him look fatter than he, than he already does. And it's a full face mask. And as they're introducing him with the full face mask, broadcasting legend Lord Alfred Hayes on commentary says that uh, there is he's heard from unofficial sources that um but like lord lord i was like i've heard that there's a ten thousand dollar bounty on someone taking the mask off his head and it's like what a fucking dumb idea you know like this guy's been wearing like no mask he's just got these little this little eye mask everyone knows what he looks like and now we're gonna do an angle where someone takes his mask off there's there's a bounty like that would actually be interesting if like there was some intrigue about who he was but there isn't well um we again turn to the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine for Newsbeat, hot off the press. There was a quick mention of the Repo Man in the May 93 issue. Remember, they? It, I say May, um, but the, the, it was months be hot. Like, the, you know, the May 93 issue covers things that happens like months before. Anyway, yeah. Repo Man is sporting a new tire tread pattern on his wrestling tights, the magazine writes. He says that's not all that's new about Repo Man. Quote, I'm going to do some real damage, says Repo. People who mess with me are going to feel as if they've been hit with a tire iron. WF Magazine would go on to say, knowing what a sneak Repo man is, his words should be taken as a warning by his future competitors. He's likely to have some ugly tricks up his sleeve and maybe elsewhere as well. They weren't kidding about the baby elsewhere part. <laughs> yeah, it's over, by the way, for Repo Man. So thanks for the, thanks for the coverage, but uh, he's done. Yeah, the, the Randy Savage angles his last uh, big thing. Um, and, you know, Jake Roberts rule, I guess, technically for Barry Darso, right? Because this is early 93, and he was brought in right before WrestleMania 3 uh, to replace Randy Colley as Smash, right? That's it. So there you so, go. Yeah. Six years. He had, he had two gimmicks out of it. Yeah, and what was worse, Mass Repo Man or Mass Demolition? <laughs> Both Ooh. right at the end. I love I love how in both instances they like try throwing a mask on after you already know who he is. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, apparently they did not learn from the first time. So I guess uh, I will say Master Reaper Man is worse, but then Master Demolition lasted longer, so mm, it's a bit of a wash. Okay. Uh, Steve Kern, a.k.a. Skinner, he will get to stay on for another role. Skinner's gone, but Steve Kern gets to stay. We'll talk about that role uh, in part two of our series. Uh, he does an odd job as Skinner uh, to Shawn Michaels, heel versus heel on the way out. Yeah, I think this actually might also be on a Coliseum video. I think that it's, I think it's bashed in the USA. Um, they, there's like a, there's like a feature on Sean where they show him wrestling three different people and one of them is this match with Skinner where he just beats him with a super kick. Um, three, I mean, you know, Berserker, Reaper Man, Skinner. This is like the undercard fodder that never got any kind of a serious push. None of them amounted to anything. Berserker has a match with Perfect in January where he commits attempted murder outside the ring, pulls out the sword and tries to behead him against the ring post, which Perfect ducks. Just a, you know, just a mid-match high spot attempted murder uh, before they go back to the ring to exchange holds. Yeah, I can imagine Jim Cornette how upset he would be, you know. I mean, if, <laughs> if we're doing too many high spots, you know, too many topes in a match, what does he think about trying to behead somebody in the middle of the match? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. That's the go- well. That's the going portion of coming, and now it's on to the coming. That's what she said. Hey, <laughs> um, the previous three years we've covered, Liam, as you know, because you were uh, yeah, doing it. Uh, 1990 to 1992 haven't exactly seen a multitude of strong new characters, have they? Not at all. I mean, Undertaker, an obvious exception. Uh, we gushed over Razor Ramon in '92. We'll get to Yokozuna in a bit, but a clear winner on the new character ledger with Doink the Clown, played by Matt Bourne, an evil clown who aims to make children cry. A tremendous idea. A real highlight of this period. In doing research for this episode, Liam, I was surprised that so many on the PWO message board said they did not like Doink in real time, only to appreciate him on rewatch. I can understand the appreciation on rewatch because he's great. But what do you think about not liking Doink in real time? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I I think just because I've heard people around me say a bit of the same thing, my reach for this is that I think a lot of people, particularly those who were kind of turned off by the kind of cartoon element of the WWF that had been kind of been getting, you know, the characters we just talked about, the Repo Man, Skinner, the Berserker, just hate the idea of a wrestling clown. It's too silly, and it's just, like, it almost, yeah, when you actually say it without seeing it, just the idea mm-hmm. seems like a new low. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, there were people who thought of Titan as a circus, right? Yeah. And having a wrestling clown is, like, literally making it a circus, probably, in some eyes. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's too on the nose in that sense. And so, like, I think for a while... Anytime you would see him, especially at first, because in that first month or so, even though this 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 is a fantastic character, so I'm going to rave about it in a second. It is kind of one dimensional at the very beginning where it's like they really drive that point home of, oh, he likes to make children cry and not laugh. And it's he, he pulls the pranks and he laughs hysterically. And that's kind of all there is to it. And it just seems like, oh, God, you know, I don't know which way this is going to go, but this this could be pretty fucking bad. But. Doink is an absolutely awesome character, and he gets better and better as the weeks go on. He gets, am- I think, it gets amazing as soon as he starts wrestling, because as soon as he starts wrestling, and they 
actually make the point that you know this guy actually is like an excellent technical wrestler. Yes, that, that, that it's I was you took the words out of my mouth because you talked about how it was like one dimensional at first, but when they add the layer that he's also a technical wrestler, and you know they're like, well, who is this guy? Yeah, you know, like I, that's something they would go away from in subsequent months, but like they they, they played up the idea that like this was someone we knew who was like, yeah, he used to persona. say that a lot. Yeah, it was. I, yeah, it added a whole dimension. And I think you're right. The, the fact that, like, the announcer, they're like, whoa, this guy's a great technical wrestler. That made it work. I, I didn't agree with Meltzer at all comparing him to the honky-tonk man. He, he was like, it's a gimmick that gets over when he comes out and gets a reaction. But, like, the crowd kind of dies during the matches. Maybe, I guess, like, because it's like a WWF 1993 crowd that, you know, they're not that into squash matches, but I found the wrestling to be like intriguing. And he was certainly a better worker than Wade Ferris. Oh God. Yeah. By miles. And, and uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't personally agree with that either. I think that he's, I, th- I mean, the thing is you could probably say that for like almost anybody that they brought in with the squash match format. They, the, the crowd doesn't fucking go wild for much of these, you know, the squash matches I've been watching for this three year period as part of this, this extended series we're doing start from 1990. It's like, it's, it's just as this develops, you get to see more. It, it's not one dimensional. When he when he does his first angle, which we're going to talk about, we get to see kind of that sick side of him. And he's no longer the clown who's laughing all the time and just you know goofy, goofy, goofy. It's like okay, yeah, he does that, and then his face changes. And Heenan's like, look at the face change. Look, yeah, there's a split personality going on here. There's more to this guy. And Heenan, as we say, is like, I feel like I've seen this guy somewhere. I know, I think I know him. But I, I can't put my finger on it. And it's just like, by building the intrigue, by, by actually there not being just one dimension, this is a phenomenal character. And like, as time goes on, it's like, there is just so much they could have done with this. And they did do a good bit, but they could have done so much more. Agree. And because it's Matt Bourne, I don't think they really could have paid off the, well, who is? Because I mean, I don't think people, oh, oh my it's God. Big Josh. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's the guy who was on the first WrestleMania card. Like, you know, yeah. I, I don't think like it, that wouldn't have been a good, an adequate path. But uh, before he starts wrestling, um, you know, and this goes back to late 92, they, they did stuff building Doink up. And, and this was kind of when you, you know, it wasn't just making the children, the crowd cry. He would play pranks on the wrestlers, sprays Marty Jannetty with water. This is before Marty was fired, obviously. Uh, gets Bob Backlund to slip on a banana peel boss man on a wire we agreed doink was cool did he make the baby faces look bad i only asked this because i'm gonna have a follow-up um to it but but please uh go ahead i uh, yeah i don't i don't think it makes the only situation i think this is just to be honest it's kind of like the tale of like all wrestling if the baby face is put out too much and there's nothing about it then yeah it makes them look bad but like really the only situation where that happens to be honest, it's like, I don't think that Bob Backlund looked bad or Bossman looked bad or Janet looked bad. I think Crush ends up looking quite bad <laughs> when we oh, talk Oh, really? Because about... I, I thought, like, in each instance, like, because they, they didn't really go, they, they sort of just all walk off. Yeah. Um, Janetti, uh, Backlund, Backlund slipping on the banana peel is fucking bad. I mean, oh, but it's bad crazy. because Bob Backlund is fucking bad. Yeah. You know? And, but I, I do remember thinking the boss man was kind of a tool tripping on the wire, <laughs> like, in real time. Like, I was like, oh, God, like, the boss man's kind of a nerd now or something. Yeah, like, but at least, huh? but I mean, that's the thing. Like, at least that leads that they did do a match. You know, they did yes, do boss okay. man versus doink. So it's like, it, it goes, uh, my, my, I guess my big thing is like, if somebody gets like, like I guess Janetti did look like kind of a moron actually. When he so maybe actually there's a point to this where it's like, it gets, you know, bombed with water and just does nothing about it. 
So that kind of makes yeah. him look like a goof. The banana peel is so innocuous that it's just like, ah, whatever. You know, no big deal. But I, but it's interesting because it's like, yeah, it is Doink kind of getting over their expense a little bit. But how you handle it in the aftermath is kind of the key. And as as we'll get to for in part two when we talk about WrestleMania, yeah, they, they could have probably done that a little bit better. But the key is that, you know, you could probably control the narrative a lot better. They were used to controlling the narrative a lot better and didn't really care about stuff like this when they were just doing superstars. But things are changing now that we've got more live crowds. Yes. Um. You know, one baby face that was working with Doink uh, on the house shows that was apparently pretty vocal about Doink getting cheers, okay, to our earlier point, Tito Santana. Mm. Tito apparently complained that Doink was was being cheered in their house show matches. Uh, Meltzer reported that Doink is still over as a baby face in New York, and it's becoming a major problem with them having to shoot many angles to turn him heel for the live crowd so they don't cheer him. So this is it. So in these kind of like smarky pockets of WWF fandom, and that's what surprised me with PWO, like what, to read their message, because it, it seemed that Doink in real time was a smart favorite in 1993. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of a statement about where people's heads are at with these baby faces. Cause like, a lot of them are tools. I'm telling you, they're tools. Yeah. Boss man, you know, boss man was kind of played out. Mm-hmm. Backlund's not over a lick. No. Janetti was probably the one who came off like the, you know, the coolest in terms of like of the ones that he's messed with, yeah. but like certainly off the screen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I apologize for the bottle of Jack Daniels. But yeah, so it's like I, it's okay. Here's a character who like he's just you know a heel that fucks with the baby face, and 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 you're being told to not like this guy, and it's like yeah, but you know what? He's fucking good, and all these characters that he's doing this to are pretty one dimensional and not kind of really all that interesting by themselves. We saw Janetti in those interviews we were talking about in '92 at the end of the year with Sean the face to face on prime time, and it's like. Ginetti's not fucking, you know, he, he's not this guy where it's like, if you do something to him, oh my God, people are going to be outraged because you're doing it to him. It's like, if Doink's fucking, if it's fucking funny, then, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, The big angle with Doink, I guess we might as well get to this right now, mm. Um, is with Crush. And they, so after Crush has been playing tricks on kids and wrestlers, he has a thing, um, with Crush, and Crush tells him to leave kids alone and grabs his arm, and Doink comes out on television, you know, acting like his arm's broken, it's in a sling, and he gives Crush a flower, and then Crush is like, whatever, he grabs a flower, turns around, and Doink just, he rips off his, what like, he rips off his, it's a prosthetic arm, obviously, but he looks like he ri- rips off his arm and just beats the shit out of Crush with it. This was a strong angle, I thought, that was played up big. Uh, they were alleging paralysis on commentary, which yeah. became a problem with some of the media outlets. Jerry Lawler, still new to commentary, acted even disgusted to play it up. Uh, this The paralysis part of the angle was later toned down due to the New York Daily News calling out Vince McMahon for exploiting the Dennis Bird situation. For those of you who don't know or may have forgotten Dennis Bird, NFL player got paralyzed around this time on mm-hmm. the field. I don't know. There's no way. Like, I don't think Vince was exploiting Dennis Bird. I don't think Vince knew who the fuck Dennis Bird was. There's no way. There's no way you would know who Dennis Bird was. It was so, just the way to sell it. Yeah, and Crush um, in the aftermath, who's now Hawaiian, by the way. Mm. When Crush originally came in, 
they were not playing up his Hawaiian roots, were they? I don't believe or, so. His, or his even voice changes. Yeah, there was a lot of shaka bra, you know, yeah. everything. Uh, he cuts pro- revenge promos from the beach leading up to WrestleMania. Okay, Liam, um, I've laid out the angle. Now you talk about uh, what you thought of it. Yeah, so I, just to, on that note, I do like the crush promos on the beach where he's crushing the coconut and stuff like that. I, I, I you know, as a kid, I like the shift in the characters to, to being Hawaiian because to me it's like it's far more distinctive and affable than those early vignettes that we absolutely ridiculed and rightfully so where he's like a goof with a terrible mullet. Crushing he still coconut. has the terrible mullet. Yeah. yeah, he does. It's actually more terrible now. The he like the goofy guy who like crushes coke cans as as a kid. That's like this, these here. Him on the beach in his doing this the Hawaiian shtick should have been his introductory vignettes because this character. Yeah, they should have been because it's like if if you're gonna have this guy, at least have something fully formed. Whereas it didn't. He's just like it, it was what it was. And now we've finally got something with okay. So Crush is kind of finding his own identity here. This is good, but this angle is excellent, and I always get a kick in the build up. And the aftermath of people talking <laughs> and saying that Doink pulled his arm out of the socket to hit Crush with it. <laughs> like they, they even say it at WrestleMania. It's like, Doink, we can't believe you pulled your arm out of the socket to attack. Right, that, that, that would be very serious and quite a trick. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I, I actually think putting it back would be the bigger trick. But that, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, I always remember that too. He pulled his arm out of his socket. Like I think Vince <laughs> and Savage both yell it during the angle. <laughs> but the post-match completely shines because Lawler, who, by the way, another candidate for Rob well, Bartlett's replacement, though he didn't get the call. But um, Lawler is just superb selling this angle. Even you know, saying that like even he doesn't like seeing things get this far in wrestling. And we get an ambulance sighting, which feels like a big deal. They go away for promos to, to hype up the rumble. They come back and they're still tending to crush. And they're talking about, you know, his legs not haven't moved. And that's that's the scary part. That said, you know, so this this is good. But that said, as is a bit of a pattern when we do these podcasts, Kyle, we kind of realize that they're in a habit of kind of realizing at once, shit, you know, we need to get some heat on these heels. And we see like a flurry of heavy angles like this at the same time which becomes an issue in Chris's case because as good as this is and as well as it's sold as we'll talk about they do other heavy angles that get more play in the follow-up than this does and it kind of leaves crush you know kind of i think that he's you know him coming back for the rematch for the match with doint just kind of feels like mid yeah, it, it feels mid-card, and it feels like kind of a formality that he's back. There's no, like, excitement that Crush is coming back to get him because they're too busy doing that elsewhere. Yeah, no one's yelling Shaka Bra. Yeah, we'll get to because there are multiple heavy heat angles that sort of take place, you know, not the same week, but, like, in w- within a matter of weeks. Um, yeah. That was something, as you kind of alluded to, we mentioned, I, I think, in 1991 and 1992, that there's, like, a congestion of heavy heat angles. It seems like when they get one on their mind, they like to do three uh, <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. You know, I, I do love how they let the angle breathe there, yeah. even on like a 45 minute weekend show. Cause it happens on superstars, not raw. You know, that's always a complaint of AEW nowadays yeah. that they don't like if, when they run an angle like that, where somebody gets attacked, they go to somebody cutting promos and then they just go to something else. They don't, and they don't even like mention the poor bastard who got laid out again <laughs> for the last two hours. So yeah. um, the, the way yeah. it's done here is, is certainly preferable uh, to modern times. I'd agree. I, I think that, and again, it's the, the idea of even the heel announcer, which always, you can only do it so often, but when yes. 
even the heel announcer is like, yeah, this this kind of went too far. Because like Savage and Vince are kind of getting on Lawler. Like you like this guy, you think this guy's funny. He's like, yeah, I don't like this. I don't like this too much. Yes. Which I really yeah, like, it, it and it's like, it, and, and it, yeah, it, it totally works. And and now I want to kind of, <laughs> if, if it's okay, to hit yeah. this point because. We mentioned before about Tito Santana being kind of, you know, unhappy that Doink's getting cheered on the house shows because the character's quirky and funny and interesting. And we see, again, it's something new, which has been lacking massively in this company for the last couple of years, I feel. Like an interesting new heel um, that's doing different things. And I sympathize in the sense that, okay, so during that initial period, the fans are kind of liking Doink because he's doing these different wacky things. But they did those different wacky things with the idea that he would be booed. And yeah, that was the intent. Yeah, it was the intent. And they they, again, because they they were so used to controlling their their media and controlling their their television, they could talk about it that way, even if it got over differently, if they wanted to. But now things are different. And as a result, I I have a big this is going to be a theme of talking about the WrestleMania build for me is that there's a real pattern of inconsistency with how they execute the mania angles and the follow-up of of not sending mixed messages, which always bothers me in wrestling, that, to be honest, is borderline sloppy. And it's time to kind of touch on this, because this is the first instance we're talking about. It's it's one of the things I don't like in, in, in any form of wrestling for any period of time, where you're trying to get people to feel one thing about a character, and then something happens out of left field that completely diverts us. And it doesn't feel like it's, it, it feels like it's out of context and it just kind of, it, it deflates the message you're trying to send. And it's okay when you're trying to do it for intrigue, you know, as part of the story, that's fine. But this is a great example where Doink, who clearly getting over as a babyface in New York, is scripted to hit Bartlett dressed as Elvis with a pie in the face on Raw. And the entire execution, it was set up to be a babyface spot. It was yes. set up to be a babyface pop, maybe because Vince just wanted to fuck with Bartlett or something, or because they thought it would be amusing. And it's like, you watch it, and it's like, why on earth would you do this with the sicko heel, who you're going to continue to push this way after WrestleMania, if not more than ever because of what ends up happening at WrestleMania. And it's like, the the, the story that you're pushing is Crush coming back to get his revenge against this evil clown who's making, you know, people cry and and is is and is a danger and here we are putting the this this notorious new heel in a spot to get cheered and i hate stuff like that and it it just i can't say that it made a big difference but i just feel like considering that 1993 is a year of rebuilding be consistent with the rebuilds and there's a and the reason why this stands out is because there's a few instances like this where it's like will the yo man just 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 Focus. Focus on the goal. Yeah, you're doing a heavy heat angle, and then you're killing the heavy heat afterwards. Yeah, and there are instances, uh, obviously, um, uh, of this later on. Um, Doink was rumored to be a challenger for Bret Hart for the WWF title at the houses leading up to Mania. I think they only wind up wrestling once, though. Mm. Um, He just steps in for an injured Razor Ramon. Razor Ramon is having all sorts of knee issues. Uh, It winds up being Bam Bam Bigelow. Uh, challenging Brett, not Doink, but like both Wade and Dave were just like stunned. They're like, I cannot believe Doink the Clown is going to be a WF like title challenger at the houses, but it doesn't really happen. Uh, but I mean, he was getting over. He, he was absolutely getting over and uh, was a breath of fresh air and a strong new character that we're going to be talking about uh, throughout 1993 until he's not strong anymore and he's a shitty baby face. <laughs> but uh, Rick 
Flair may be gone, Liam, as we talked about earlier, but it is a mini WCW invasion in 93 WWF. While Flair leaves, in comes the Steiners, Lex Luger, Giant Gonzalez, a.k.a. Gigante, and even Jim Ross. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's like, okay, the institution of WCW is going back, but uh, the rest of 91 WCW is here in Titanland. Uh, let's uh, start with the Steiners. Uh, I really forgot what terrible promos they were about. Yeah, I always kind of give Rick a, not a pass, but like, okay. Oh, so we don't want to give him a pass anymore. I'll tell oh, you no, so, certainly not now. I mean, Jesus. Okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, forget about wrestling promos. I think when this man speaks in the game of life, it's a thumbs down. Okay, <laughs> I, I don't think it's a thumbs down. That's a major thumbs down. Rick Steiner? Uh, I mean, I mean, what a jackass. <laughs> I've been thinking about that about Rick Steiner for since like '99. I feel like, but yeah, this like Rick's like with with the dog face grim. It's like, well, you know, he's just going to be like a wacky promo, especially with Gorman. Scott Steiner is terrible during this period. He feels like he just cannot. He's like he's got bulldog vibes for me. Yeah, he's like a deer in headlights. He's like, oh crap. And, but like, even, I remember like even a WC, they were. I mean, it's not like it was a WWF thing. Like no. they're. I, I remember there would be promos they would cut, like, 89, 90 in uh, WC, which were just awful. Yeah. Like, they, they were, like, the like the most – I don't think there was a, a more overacted wrestling where the promos were worse. You know, like, it, other than barking, they should yeah, – this is – Neither of them should – neither of them should ever speak except for barking. Uh, I'm yeah. That, with that. This really is, it, like, it, a team where you think, like, you know what? Did no one think to put a manager with them? I mean, they didn't really need it because they were over. Well, at babyface managers, as we're going to talk about, they're stuff, doomed. Usually, but yeah. <laughs> um, but the Steiners, it's kind of interesting here. These first couple months, at least the compilation of television that we lean on, they were sort of persona non grata. Yeah, like, I, they, they, they did, and some of them were fun. You know, obviously the Steiners built their reputation, kind of just bullying jobbers, fucking them up. You know, <laughs> hitting them hard with moves. Um. On pay-per-view, the Steiners get wins over the Beverly's at the Rumble and the Head Shrinkers at WrestleMania. Might as well mention that. Now, both those matches are slightly underrated, I would say. I think the, I, I do think the Beverly's one is the Head Shrinkers one. I don't like that match very much, if I'm honest. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, okay. like I, I, I feel like you get the the great spot with the uh, you know Rick on the shoulders catches him in midair, hits the belly to belly. That's good. But I really like that Head Shrinkers match. I just feel like I don't know, the Steiners aren't with it as much and the crowd just does not give a fuck about the head shrinkers at all and that hurts it a lot i think it kind of drags did, did, did that did that match happen after the joint angle or before i can't before. remember it's like early second match show. okay yeah, second match. Oh, it's after sean and tatanka okay yeah um the steiners were just an odd fit in the wwf weren't they i think that's gonna be a theme we're gonna talk about in multiple episodes here uh in hindsight i think it's pretty clear they should have just come in and beat Money Inc. for the tag titles like right away at WrestleMania 9. But yeah, absolutely. We're gonna get, as we're going to get to in a bit, there's a reason that match didn't take place. Yeah, there's a reason. But if, I, if I'm if i booking, in, in my mind, it's immediately, okay, so it's Money Inc. and the Steiners, and the Steiners is going to beat them. I feel like the Steiners have a problem fitting in because it never feels, I don't ever feel like what they're doing is like a big priority in this company. You know well, what like I mean? Like I said, it didn't, like on the you know, the YouTube comps that you know we lean on, they they, they were hardly featured at all. And yeah, like you go back, it's like okay, they're in some squash matches, but there there's no angles building to those Beverly Brothers and Head Shrinkers matches. 
I don't feel like there's any angles for anything they're doing at any point. I don't remember if they even really do that much with Money Inc. in the end, around in in June. No, no, no like they, yeah, like there's there's no like heavy heat angle at, at all, like where they need revenge on the heels or, or not much with the, that would make... not much with the bodies. The Quebecers just beat them, but with no angle previous. So it's like yeah, it's just they just kind of show up. Did they have no they're... ideas? They just well, when you see Scott's promos, you can almost kind of see why because it's like they just they just have them wrestling and that's it. And I guess maybe they were just like I don't really know what else they could have done more with them. They could have had there was obviously stuff you could have done, but they just it was like they just brought them in. They were just having their matches and then they were gone. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's some stuff in between. Obviously, we'll get to with the Steiners, but they're in. Mm-hmm. So's Lex Luger. Now they had an idea for Lex Luger. Yeah. For weeks on television, they have Bobby Heenan hype that, quote, Narcissus will be unveiled at the Royal Rumble. Mm. Narcissus. Say it with me, Liam. Yep. Narcissus. <laughs> that has changed to the narcissist, though. Apparently, at Lex Luger's behest, uh, Luger comes out and poses at the Royal Rumble. That's his debut. Meltzer reports that everyone kind of knew who he was. But, woof. Um Something that was just jarring to me watching this TV back, this gimmick did not get over at all. <laughs> no, it does not. No, it does I mean, I, what the, I mean, Vince, I guess, couldn't help cartooning it up a little bit. And like, he needed to like, it couldn't just be Lex Luger yeah. coming in. It need, He needed to have a gimmick and, and he needed to be Narcissus uh, or, you know, that's the Narcissus. He's just posing in front of these mirrors and, and, you know, despite all that happened in 91 and 92, Liam, with WF getting in trouble, Vince is so still obsessed with the bodies. Like, in Luger, I think it's his first squash, the entire time Vince is talking about, like, Luger's physique. Which, I, I mean, is impressive, but it, it shows that Vince isn't ready to let go of that, um, you know, as kind of a way to get somebody over I guess. Yeah, to lean on it. Yeah, it's like, and, and it's kind of reflected in the sense... That, I mean, I mean, the highlight of Luger during this whole period, really, is Bobby Heenan at the Rumble itself when they do the absolutely ridiculous unveiling. And Bobby Heenan is basically doing his best impression of Vince McMahon looking at Gary yes. Strider at the WBF pay-per-view. Yes, it is. You're right. It's totally like, if, if you didn't know better, like, if he, I don't, I mean, Heenan, I'm, who knows? But, like, you would have thought Heenan was parodying the WBF. Yeah. yeah. It is. It's like, oh, Lex, come on, just give us some more. Just, just te- don't tease us, Lex. Like, it's so, it's yeah. ridiculous. And like, Heenan, yeah, as the curtain falls at the rumble, Heenan drops to one knee just so he can get like a little bit closer. <laughs> it's like, Bobby, Heenan. see, that's, that's the thing for me. Like, Bobby Heenan should have been tied to Lex Luger. Yes. And we'll talk about that in a second. What do you think about them? Like, do you think they didn't want to call him Lex Luger? It certainly feels that way. I feel like, but, like Mr. The- he was, he was just going to be Narcissus. Yeah, that it's like Vin- fucking stupid. Oh, it stinks. It's it's like Vince has read a book about Roman and Greek mythology this 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 quarter because obviously Cleopatra and Julius Caesar yeah. show up at the at the at the Rumble to hype up the you know the toga party, the biggest toga party in the world at WrestleMania that that, that everyone didn't wear a toga for. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and so it's like, but like this Narcissus thing, you know, mixed with the character. You can see Vince like, okay, we're going to make this like the ultimate version of this. He's going to, he's, he looks so good. And it's like, but I kind of find it funny to contrast this to Doink, funny as it is. Here is an idea that has been done before 
and it's not new and it actually strips away what makes this guy work whereas doink yes. like it adds to what this guy was and it's all new and it's all interesting and doink as ridiculous as it is to say more over than like saluga during this period of time Oh yeah, there's no question at all. Yeah. But, so it's the it's the narcissist, the guy who lo- loves to look at himself in the mirror. Meltzer, correctly, I would say, mm-hmm. says it, it was just too much like Shawn Michaels under Rick Martel. I I b- before I had read Dave saying that, I thought he just came off as a shitty Mister Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can you know it's funny because like I can see why Vince would think that there's like an ingredient missing with Lex because that's kind of the rap on him. Like, I, mean, in, I mean, yeah, I mean, he didn't carry. I mean, it didn't work with him as like a top baby face or as a top heel in WCW. Yeah. So I feel like it was kind of something that like had been, you know, it was pervading in kind of like the general consensus at the time. But like, oh, well, Lex, you know, Lex is just missing that one thing. And of course, you know, really the best Lex ever was was when he was just himself in 89. And so to me, even even myself, you know, I had really only been following wrestling for like six months or so and watching worldwide. But even I at this point was like, Shawn Michaels had the mirror, and I'm drawing comparisons to Rick Rude as like the body guy who's in love with himself in my own like you know seven year old mind. So I'm not really like impressed with Lex at this point. There's very like I say, it's just nothing new about it. And I think that he would have been just better off if he was just a massive douchebag prick who thought he was you know hot shit and as I, you know, ha- had some other ingredients added to his act. This is like the anti-Yoko Zuda. We talked about last time how, like, Yoko is a big guy, you know, could have come in as a big monster and, like, it would have, you know, probably would have been okay, but would he have been that much other than a big, ba- bigger Bam Bam Bigelow who's like a, you know, another just big heel, but, like, the packaging of Yoko kind of helped give him an identity that he maybe helped him stand out a little bit. And yeah, this, he- is, this is one where the WF packaging detracted from Lex. You know what? And you could just see it. Like, I don't think Luger believed in this. I don't think he liked it. Nah. And so, so if the if the guy doesn't like it, I mean, it's just it's just not going to work at all. Um, all right. This was something someone brought up on the Facebook page for Squared Circle Gazette, and it was something I had planned on discussing anyway. The idea that there was a Lex Luger Ric Flair trade. Mm, yeah. Okay. So I I think maybe some people listening to this have heard this urban legend before some have not so let's just discuss it okay lex luger had a non-compete clause that i believe ran out on march 1st of 1993 because it would have been like one year after he left wcw uh maybe i got the date slightly but it's close all right it's it's march he winds up debuting though like five weeks earlier at the rumble or whatever five six weeks at the rumble so like that's before the non-compete and people have always said, well, how did that happen? And then they look at the timing and that Ric Flair was sent back, you know, go, winds up going back to WCW. And there is this urban legend, David Bixenspan has talked about this, among others, where perhaps to get Luger to debut early, the two organizations came together behind the scenes and, you know, Titan was like, all right, if, you know, We'll let Flair out of his deal now. He can go back to you guys. But can can we debut Luger on television earlier? Yeah. I don't think that's the case. I wouldn't expect think? so. I, I wouldn't expect so. I can see why people draw that line. But there's a couple of things that don't kind of jive where it's like, well, first of all, if 
depending on which of these is is correct, it's like, well, does Flair have the ability to leave or not? If he has the clause in his contract that says he can leave, I don't really see what Vince's ground, what what their grounds are that they can keep him if he's allowed to leave on on his own whim. That's a great point. That's a great. I, that's the one I even think about. I, I was just pointing to the fact that if there was some you know handshake agreement behind the scenes that had some legal binding to it, we talked earlier that they dragged their ass giving Flair his release. Dragged their ass on the Flair release. Not only that, if they did barter a deal, they did a shit job because Flair wasn't allowed to wrestle till June. Yeah, so for, yeah, WC, what did WCW get out of the deal? Yeah, yeah. like, but and, and the other thing is, it's not like Luger was debuted at in like this like really meaningful way. Like they they didn't even call him Lex Luger. No, the, they they just kept saying it was Narcissus, so they didn't even use the name Lex Luger like to drive pay per view buys for the Rumble, and like. The time between the debut and like March 1st, it's not like they did anything that meaningful with him. Like, nope. it's like, okay, if there would have been some like huge angle to drive a, a big match for Mania, okay, I could maybe give a little more credence to this theory, but there really wasn't. No, and I think that maybe the missing. And I don't think there was any reason to, because I mean, Hogan doesn't. I mean, uh, spoiler alert, we're getting to it, folks. Uh, <laughs> Hogan comes back, but Hogan doesn't show up on TV until February 22nd yeah. for the first time. And Luger, if his non compete ran out the, the following week, there's no reason that Hulk Hogan, who's going to be slot debuts at a certain time there's no reason that lex luger can't debut a week later because luger should be slotted below hogan in the mania pecking order anyway yeah yeah so you would think i mean and that's it because like and, and i think where probably the missing kind of the the, uh, the missing link component to this is that it was a bill watts thing right in both cases bill watts was the one negotiating with trying to get flair back and basically talked flair into coming back and bill watts was the one who gave luger the early release before he gets turfed out and lets him go five weeks early so I think that it might be like a one of those things of like people trying to put pieces together that may yeah. not be there, but because there's a, there's a there's a similar a similar thread, maybe people think there's just something to it. Okay, wait, did you read that Watts may have just given the okay for Luger to work? Yeah, I think early? yes, it was, I believe it was Watts who said who who did it. Okay, thank God because. I went back, like, dude, I combed the fucking Observer and the Torch, like, three times each looking for that, because I thought I had read that, and you know me, you know, sometimes you're reading these newsletters, you know, you're high as a kite, and and, <laughs> and you, you, you think you read something, and you're like, ah, I must have made that up, or something, but uh, no, so I thought I had read that, that the simple answer to this, why Luger debuted before his non-compete was thought to end, was that Watts just said, fuck just tore it up and said whatever. Yeah, that, so that, that, you're saying you saw that too? It's in the Observer Yearbook, for sure. Oh, okay, then never mind. Okay, yeah. there you go. That okay, so there was no fucking trade. Bill Watts just said, I don't give a shit. That's what happened. So there's your answer, <laughs> folks. Um I thought there was a brief moment just going back, uh, maybe a week or two, where Bobby Heenan, he has more of a presence on TV. Flair's still with the company, um, you know. Heenan supporting Ramon, you know, because remember, Heenan had come out for that angle we talked about in the last episode where it was Flair and Ramon attacking Bret Hart and Saved by Mr. Perfect. And yeah. he's hyping Narcissus. Man, if you didn't know better, 
and you were just watching at the time, you would have thought that the old Heenan family might have been getting back together. Flair, Ramon, and Luger. I, I don't know if I'm reaching there, but, man, that might have been a shot in the arm this promotion could have used with that as a top heel group. Oh, yeah. So not only do I think you are not reaching, having watched the TV back, especially... Again, sometimes you, it's funny that I, yeah, we just kind of, kind of, uh, guffawed at the idea of the Luger Flair trade because there are pieces that are kind of disparate, but you can see a thread that maybe pull it, pulls it together. Heenan not being on raw commentary to start with kind of makes me wonder why, what they were going to do with Heenan. Like during that, you know, it's like, okay, so we, we need somebody else to do the commentary. Why? Bobby Heenan is not going to be there in that role. Possibly because again they were, I think possibly they were kind of thinking that they were going to do this, and I feel like it was, it was when they teased it when they, with that great angle with Brett and Perfect that I really liked at the end of '92. It's like oh my god, this is like this is good. Heenan back in the mix. We need characters like this who can who can deliver. And Heenan, and that's a good stable of guys too. Flair, Ramon, and Lex. Lex is like the new guy who's different from the other two, but like he could benefit from that. And I honestly think that like. When we're talking about that missing ingredient that Vince wanted to add to Lex, to me, that's Bobby Heenan. Yes. Heenan as, you know, Luger's being Luger and Heenan talking him up and, and Lex getting that one line in here and there is, is far more, um, because it's funny because like, you know, we've had a lot of these characters like the Berserkers, the Reaper Men, the Skinners, even the Doinks that at first are kind of one dimensional. And then you got like a guy like Razor who's coming as a top guy, but he's kind of just himself. Even though he's got the, 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 he's got the name, but like, he's just a guy. He's not like, mm-hmm. he's not a, he's, you know, whatever. He's just, he's playing this role. Narcissus feels like it's in the Berserker category. Whereas Lex, you know, the Luger yes. of 89, it needs to be in the other category. The one that's going to, the Luger that's going to work is the Luger that needs to be in the Razor Ramon category. If he's just Lex Luger being himself and Heenan's with him to kind of be the garnish. Yeah. Uh, it should be noted. Heenan was also in Flair's corner for that Iron Man match in Boston versus yeah. Brett. So yeah. the, the, they were, Heenan was kind of taking on that role. So you're right that, that maybe, but of course, you know, Flair leaves. Mm-hmm. So there's no need for there. Ramon, he has a lot of, he is, again, he's got a lot of knee issues in his period. So he kind of like between the Rumble and Mania is, he's not, not doing on TV that a lot. Yeah. And then, and then Luger, yeah. But, but Luger really could have used Heenan. And to that point, Luger's first feud is with Mr. Perfect. Very logical, right? Based on the yep. idea that Eden brought Luger in and Perfect ran Flair out of town. But my God, Liam, this feud did not click no. at all. This was a horrible feud. My opinion is that Luger, and this is the way they generally did it with new heels, um, you know, going back to the late 80s. Yep. Luger just needed a baby face to work with first that he could just, that would just be fed to him at Mania. He would just beat him clean, you know, kind of like, like an earthquake over Hercules. <laughs> oh my God. I was about to say the exact same one. Okay. Well, there you go. But that's, that's, <laughs> but, and, and perfect was not the right guy for that role at this time. Yeah. Mr. Perfect was like the number two baby face entering 1993. Okay. We, we, you mentioned that maybe even they could have thought about him in that, you know, baby face champion world title role. Uh, we do get during this feud that the highlight, the clear highlight of the perfect Luger feud is those perfect vignettes with various pro athletes, Steve Jordan of the Vikings, Felton Spencer of the T-Wolves, Mike Madonna of the North Stars. Yes, the Minnesota North Stars who were an organization back then. <laughs> um, 
you know, obviously all Minnesota teams were perfect hails from. Uh, you know, people always remember those. Those were great, but this feud stuck. Yeah, excellent vignettes were perfect, but this this feud doesn't click mostly because they don't actually fucking do anything at all. Like you're waiting, they they do the initial, they set up the initial premise of like this guy's beyond perfection, and then it's it's a lot of perfect saying no, you're not. We'll see, and then they like that, and that's it for like weeks, and they finally come face to face on the podium when Lex is getting his swell on in the mirror. Uh, another time. Which is just a big load of nothing anyway. Perfect just puts the towel over the mirror and it's like they play his music and apparently that's some kind of victory for Mr. Perfect. There is one amusing segment, I'll say that, at least about like where Perfect has like some skinny geek in the locker room saying this is what Luger looks like after a match and then he just like chops the shit out of him. Which is great. I wonder who that guy was. That had to be a rib on somebody. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like the Heenan element gets downplayed massively all at once. And it must be if they did have designs on Heenan becoming a manager again, either it gets decided that's just not going to happen or whatever. But they just like, yeah. And it's just like, they just absolutely, it's almost like the Heenan aspect is gone. It's now just about perfect and Lex arguing about perfection, which leaves like no conflict and there's nothing going on. And it's weird because you've got a razor perfect brawl on TV in February when they're still working together on the house shows where it feels like this is this going to be the mania match or is, uh, you know, yeah. um, you kind of wonder where that's going. And it's like, if not, like that's kind of the perfect time for Luca to like get his first kind of cheap shot in with a forearm maybe and be, and, and, and kind of raise him. Oh, okay. So now, now Lex is going for perfect and he's left him lane and he can, it's something to brag about. And we're going to, we're going to move somewhere with this feud. Instead, we just get this, repetitious i'm beyond perfection and that's that's pretty much all you get until mania yeah yeah there was nothing physical whatsoever uh between the two um unless if you consider throwing a towel on a mirror physical i guess uh mania nine rebooking okay um this is what i would have done i would have flipped opponents for michaels and luger i would have done michaels and perfect as the ic title match and i would have had luger and tataka's undefeated streak yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I, I know that a little bit later on in this in the show, we're going to talk about a past SCG radio where we rebooked Mania 9. And as I remember, both of these matches were what we went with. Um, Luger ending the undefeated, undefeated streak. And I think we did We did Michaels and Perfect. I think we have Perfect winning. Uh, oh, wow. To, to lead to Michaels getting it back off Perfect. Um, I, you certainly could have done that. I think I, it's just, to me, Michaels and Perfect is a deal you could you you could have done something really subtle and i think people would have been very excited for that match just naturally based on the people and then going back to what i said earlier that luger just needed to like have a a baby face fed to him that he could get a strong win you know ending tatanka's unbeaten streak i know we're all like a fucking tatanka paul diamond's doing his wife whatever (laughs) but like you know like (laughs) yeah four bastards but um you know like here's the thing and we're going to see this, and we're going to talk about it throughout 93. They, they they clearly want to keep Tatanka unbeaten, but they don't give him a serious push. It's like, yeah. okay, he's unbeaten. He's challenging Shawn Michaels. And, okay. um, So, all right, you want to keep Tatanka unbeaten? Yes. All right, so he's going to win the Intercontinental title? Well, no, no, we're not going to do that. And then, like, even when we get to, like, King of the Ring, they, they start finding all these cutesy ways to keep him undefeated, but he doesn't really get any meaningful wins. 
So I look at this and say, why not just fucking end his undefeated streak earlier? Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the the, the key was, and it, it's going to happen. It doesn't happen until the close to the end of 93, but like, yeah, I don't know if it was a fear or whatever, but like the fact that when his undefeated streak was over, he would pr- mean like nothing. It comes to fruition, but then why continue pushing a guy as undefeated if he's not going to mean anything without it? Like, just end the unbeaten streak and, you know, find a different baby face to push. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to. It's like, you can do this for so long, but, like, if you're just going to tell us this guy's unbeaten and never actually go anywhere with that, or it's ne- it doesn't actually, like... Eh. What's what's the point of it? It's like this isn't this is not actually leading to him getting the push. If he's just unbeaten and beaten the Repo Man repeatedly, which is pretty much what it felt like he was doing, and Rick Martel, it's like okay, he's undefeated, but he's not actually doing anything successful either. So it comes to a point where it's just like okay, we're either going to stop. And I felt like by the time the Borger thing happened, like he was treading water after WrestleMania anyway. He does like really nothing of any note. It's like working with Bigelow, but like nothing, nothing really importance you know nothing, no, that, nothing that required him being undefeated anyway let's put it that way they could have done no, they could have done the same angle they end up doing and he's just he's not undefeated anymore and who gives a shit yeah and you know we'll, we'll, we'll get to that we'll get to that uh as, as 1993 rolls on uh but first we need to talk about uh, another uh wcw refugee making their way to titan and that is giant gonzalez attacking mm. Uh, the Undertaker at the Royal Rumble, laying him out. I always assumed, Liam, that Giant Gonzalez was a replacement for Nails after Nails got fired. That basically, okay, Undertaker was going to feud with Nails. Oh, shit. Well, Nails is gone. Who's going to feud with the Undertaker now? All right, we got to find somebody. Then they bring in old Jorge. But it turns out Titan was looking at bringing Gonzalez in going back several months. Yeah. The, 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 this was in the newsletters going back to the summer of 92, wow. these wow, talks. Wow. Uh, he's fucking big. We know that. <laughs> he sure is. Vince loves his monsters. Uh, but the bodysuit, ridiculous. And he's obviously terrible in the ring. There's some handicap matches, one on three. He runs off various baby faces, such as Tatanka and Owen Hart. But, I mean, it's, it's fucking Giant Gonzalez. It's El Gante. He's just not good. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of kind of the big issue here, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, it was also called the Giant Gorilla by accident by Mike <laughs> McGurk. They had to redo that on TV, apparently. Giant Gorilla. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, in fairness. Actually, on that note, the Giant Gorilla, I will say, because his gimmick, obviously, for those who haven't seen the, the, the ridiculous um, bodysuit with the fur sticking out, which just makes him look even bigger, in fairness. I do like how, yeah. even though he had the hair sticking out, he had a shave for WrestleMania. <laughs> Yes, that was good. Yeah. Um. In in fairness to this, and I am about to say something nice about the the giant Gonzalez push. Believe it or not, this no, is. No, a- I, I I was hold on. I was so glad you put this in the notes because yeah. it was a point I wanted to make as well about old versus modern wrestling. Yeah, and and in and again to this point, it's actually different. We mentioned there. You had the point. You assumed this is a replacement for nails. One of the things that we complained about in 92 was that once they debuted Nails, they just kind of had him be just another guy and didn't actually kind of adjust their booking to suit what he was or what the character was. This is the opposite. This is the closest. Gonzalez is the closest to a Heyman-style booking job that WF has done for quite some time. Accentuate the strengths, hide the weaknesses. He comes in at the Rumble. He kills Taker in pretty short order. He doesn't sell at all. 
which is a big deal because when he sells at WrestleMania, it's over. Like he just mm-hmm. looks yeah. like a fucking idiot when he starts selling with his goofy face. Um, he, he wrestles like he wrestles like Scott Hall doing an impression of the giant. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, he does what he does one squash match on television where they run away, or the two guys run away, and he kills Luis Bacoli. Um He destroys, you guessed it, Virgil on Superstars. I, uh, I did okay, okay about that match. I did kind of like we we shit on Virgil earlier and deserving. So I do like how Virgil went up to the top rope to do the test of strength. Yeah, that was good. I didn't I didn't <laughs> mind that spot. Again, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's like the the, the entire thing. But was that's what you should do. That's what you, you should do. It's what you have to do. You don't have a choice. You have to do the smoke and mirrors. Virgil getting all the pantomime mileage out of climbing to the top rope works great. Gonzalez just does the run-ins or the walk-ins more generously. Um attacking people or people just walk away scared so you don't get to see him doing a lot of physicality which he's not particularly great at either they shoot the promos differently where instead of it's just him in front of a set they shoot it so that he's because he's so tall that like you see the entire thing you see the like the or the lighting and everything like that as well it yeah, makes he towers him, over the set, basically. Yeah, towers right. over the set. They do the promos with, uh, they call it forced perspective, where Gonzalez is actually in the foreground and, and Wimpleman's in the background. But because they do it side by side, it makes him look like he's like 15 times the size of Harvey Whippleman. And on these promos, he's just saying one line, like, you know, Undertaker, I will bury you or something like that. And so it, it works where you have a guy who's so fucking limited that it's all about just let's just get to the one big match and hope that we can sell it based on the fact that they don't get to see what he really is. And they tease his debut by having Whippleman say that he's going to drop a big bomb on The Undertaker at the Rumble. And the promo is so awful. that I don't even If I was watching it, I don't even think it would have landed that something was going to happen at the Rumble with The Undertaker. Yeah, no, it wasn't good at all. It fucking, we're going to talk about this probably multiple times. Harvey Whippleman is trash. He's garbage. I, I know people like have some reverence for his work is downtown Bruno in Memphis, but God, he is awful. He's, he's, he's terrible. There, there's an in-ring promo during this period of time where it's Whippleman and Gonzalez and Vince must have just hated it because he talked all over Harvey on commentary <laughs> while they're airing it. They just, it, Harvey's nothing doing his shtick. Vince is just steamrolling him with his verbiage. And then only stops when it's Gonzalez's time to get his one line, and then it's over. And that's it. Um, Now, you talked about being worried about the... First of all, I loved all the points you made. I'm going to compare it to Omas in the modern time, in a sense. Uh, But uh, um, I just wanted to point out first, they did a dry run for Mania, because there was some uh, fear, apparently, from the office about how this match could go if they didn't work together first. They do it in Louisville for USWA, okay? Taker oh, and Gonzalez. 4,000 people. <laughs> now, people are saying 4,000 people. Is that, dude, Louisville was, would be lucky to do 1,000. Yeah, they're on, they're on its ass. 4,000 people for Taker Gonzalez in a dry run for Mania. Tell me, man. There, there was something there when you protect him. Yeah, there there, he, there was, and we'll, and we'll hit on. But I, no, here's the thing. You talked about how the one thing that is, like, so obvious to me now in the year 2023 when I watch old wrestling versus new wrestling is you could – you you always could get a sense of who was effective 
and who was not effective in their roles because everyone was booked properly back in the old, in like the nineties and the eighties, right? Like everyone was given a good, honest shot with the booking. You talked about the way Gonzalez was shot and, and, you know, he was basically, um, you know, uh, presented the way a giant should be presented okay it was it was ultimately undone because he just sucked right i mean what else can you do i mean you you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink this guy couldn't drink Mm -hmm. but 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 they did a great job presenting him and you know it's funny with like omas you know who uh, a fucking really big guy and sometimes they they do do a great job of filming just how big he is too but i don't know if like paul white broke vince's brain or something at 99 or what, but like, it's so funny how like they have these giants do jobs now. And then like, you're supposed to forget that it happened and and, like, believe that he's so unstoppable, like for the next match. Uh, It's, it's, you know, like like, what's like the, the thing is like, you have to protect, protect these people. And like, once a giant loses or shows vulnerability, the, the gimmick's over. Yeah. With a guy like Omas or Gonzalez. And like, so like people now are told, oh man, this Omas really seems to be improved in the ring. It doesn't fucking matter because he's a fucking seven foot guy who fucking has lost a bunch of times and is a losing record in big matches. That's just stupid. You yeah. can say Omas stinks in the ring and I'm not going to disagree with you, but if you're going to book a giant character, whether it's Andre, okay, God rest <laughs> his soul, freaking Jorge Gonzalez here or Omas in the modern times, they have to be like presented as just not just larger than life, but unbeatable. Yeah. And at least here with Gonzalez, you touched on it where guys are running away from him. Even the Tatankas and all hearts kind of want nothing to do with them. There was a battle Royal on raw where they Vince promoted and said, we weren't going to have this battle Royal because all the participants refused to wrestle unless if giant Gonzalez was kept out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you do. Okay, yeah. yes, the guy sucks, but you got to throw everything. If you side him, throw everything behind it. And if he sucks, he sucks, and you give it your best effort. I love it. I, I love I love that they did that because it's like, again, something, yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. And when you've got a guy like this who cannot do the stuff that you would you have typically done, instead of just throwing them out there to fail, which is another thing that they typically do like oh you can't do exactly what what everybody else does so it's you that's the problem even though you have unique unique things that like actually if we emphasize would be better this is the classic case carl lee is another one right from that from the the mm-hmm. the guy who yes as, as soon as soon as he started you know losing he's done but what does everybody if i said to you right now kyle the great carl lee was fucking awful and everybody knows it but what is the one thing the one win people most remember about the great carl lee Undertaker? Yeah, when he when he kills Taker. Because if you don't do that with the giant guy, if he's not so super dominant, there is no point to him being there. And and, and the one thing that I hate about WWE, it's, it's one of the many things that like just turns you off and makes you sick, is when they just completely ignore all these rules about like if you beat the giant, the, the, you know, you, you, but they just they just do it again, like they expect you to just accept what they're saying now in the moment like you've only been watching for two weeks and now we're telling you this guy's important again even though you've, you've seen him you've seen the giant get slayed it's not much heat behind the giant anymore yeah that's why like you know a couple other guys in the modern times 
I never could get as behind them, even when they did show quote unquote improvements, much more improvement than Omas has shown for the record. Got like Big Show and like, or Mark Henry for the Hall of Pain. Like yeah. people like fucking love that Hall of Pain if you go to certain message boards. Oh, I know. And I, but like, I could never like get behind like this resurgent Mark Henry because I'm like, dude, I've been watching this guy fucking lose for 10 years. And I feel like you and I are like, as, as time has worn on, are like sort of alone on an island. In that regard, where we're the only people who fucking still care about this. But like, I don't know, man. I, I just think, I, I just think with Gonzalez, end of the day, they did their best. I, I think it's cool the way they shoot him. He's fucking huge, but the problem was he just sucks. And yep. you know, so, uh, let me throw you this at you here. Okay. Um, bam, who would have been a better taker opponent? Like, we'll get to this, you know, I guess you have to wait to summer, all the way to SummerSlam, but like, when it's all said and done, like Gonzalez doesn't make much of an impact. So, like, was there any point in bringing him in? Even, I mean, should with nails gone, you need to do something with Taker for Mania. Wouldn't someone like Bam Bam Bigelow have just been a better feud and opponent? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice, nice, quick and simple answer there. Yeah, absolutely. But I will say, just by devil's advocate for a second here. When you think about Vince's mentality of like when business is down. He brings in Bigelow, Yoko, Gonzalez as his big, big new heels. And we've mentioned this before, but Gonzalez, when he was first in WCW, he drew with Flair. He did. And he did. I think, and again, 4,000 in Louisville mentioned there. I, you know, you have to think in Vince's mind, it's like, I'm going to go all in with the, this big swing. And if it works, it might draw pretty well. If it fails, then it's just going to be a bust. But this, whereas like Bigelow, I think is, is the safer feud and would be a better feud. I think that the way Vince thinks is that the highest ceiling would have been Gonzalez. Yes. If you see what I, I'm saying. You know what? I think that's an absolutely phenomenal counterpoint. I think yeah. that's absolutely phenomenal. You're right. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, and Vince is probably thinking I drew money with Zeus. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, that's the thing. People like shit. I mean, that, that drew money. I mean, Zeus couldn't fucking work a lick. Um, yeah. for the record, <clears throat> pardon me. I mentioned earlier that Bigelow wound up working with Bret Hart at the house shows. There was an angle done. This was at a TV taping, uh, but not shown on television. It was at January 26th in Fresno during a non-televised segment. Bam Bam Bigelow shot fire at WWF world champion Bret Hart. Oh, I like that. I, I, like I wonder that. if they, you know, obviously at Mania, there's the ether-soaked rag as the Memphis influence <laughs> continues to seep into this promotion. You know, they could have done that at Mania. If, again, if they had gone with the safer route, Undertaker and Bigelow, they could have done a fireball angle. Again, yeah. Memphis-esque, right? Absolutely. Lawless especially could have taught him how to do it. Yeah. Um, I like right. it, though. I like I like it a lot. Taker's got a few possible opponents at Mania that are quite natural, depending on which way the wind kind of blows. Bigelow, for sure, is like... Again, when we did our rebooking show, I think there was a big push for a big low taker match, as I remember, because it's you, you hear it's just like that, that feels like a good mix, and they do wrestle I mean, much, old, much to WrestleMania. And yeah, the match wasn't that good. Yeah, I mean, they, well, maybe they didn't give a shit. I don't know. Uh, here's some food for thought, Liam, as I try to make a big picture of all the new entries we just talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, WWF over the course of ninety through, you know, I guess the beginning of 93, they fumbled Ric Flair, Sid, and the Road Warriors, right? Like, I don't think any of those three acts 
got over to the degree as had been hoped in Titan, right? Yeah. Fair statement? Okay. Luger, Gonzalez, Steiners, cumulatively, is a weaker group of WCW refugees than Flair, Sid, and Road Warriors. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Definitely definitely weaker. Note that when you, when you do this side-by-side, Flair left as champ. Sid left after doing that ridiculous job to Gonzalez, funnily enough. But he was he was still pretty strong and on the way up. Road Warriors were kind of tapering off a little bit. But, like, in the case of the newbies we've got here, Luger, Luger, you know, fucking hell, the end of Luger in WCW was, like, the period that, like, he just looks fucking miserable. Like he just wants to go. Gonzalez... He was champion. He was, but, it was, he a was char- but he wasn't on TV. It was, yeah, it was an awful run. It, it, was, it was a bad run, and he felt like, you know, Luger had more momentum as the challenger than he did as the champion, which was... Again, a product of booking and bad circumstance. Gonzalez, after after the what we initially talked about there with Flair, is like at that point he's like the one man gang, and then he's just turfed out. Steiner's like Bill Watts is in the middle of like splitting them up and turning Scott heel right when they just decide fuck you, we're going. Oh yeah, they had all sorts of problems with Watts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the point is anyway, Luger, Gonzalez, and the Steiners all ending their WCW runs with the least momentum they had, and now they're in the WWF. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, so I think again, it's like people like just get so overjoyed when these like W, it's like, oh man, well, WCW fucked these guys over. Titans yep. gonna get it right. Well, they, they just got it wrong with a stronger group. And, uh, yeah. spoiler alert, <laughs> none of these, uh, really turn out that great either. Um, even if though there's gonna be some, uh, some interesting moments to talk about, uh, particularly with Luger, uh, oh, a hard yeah. right turn, uh, over the summer. But, uh, well, the voice of WCW all those years. It's Jim Ross, as you know, Liam. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got turfed from WCW in the wake of the Bill Watts firing. He just sort of was, uh, you know, obviously because he was friendly with Watts. Um, Ross took the brunt of it. Uh, he was yeah. taken off WCW television as an announcer. He was put in a role they knew he wouldn't like. Well, he got his revenge on WCW, didn't he? <laughs> uh, Jim Ross, in the words of Dave Belter, pulled off, pretty much pulled off, an invasion angle of his own, hijacking the WSB radio show he was still being allowed to produce. A longtime listeners of WCW knows that on Ross, or that on WCW TV, Ross would always talk about his WSB radio show, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's still doing that, even though he's off WCW television. And uh, what does he do? He brings on Vince McMahon. <laughs> Bobby Heenan and Shawn Michaels as guests and announces he's going to be joining the WWF broadcast team and making his debut at WrestleMania 9. What a, what a fantastic fuck you out the door. That's, 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 that, this is a great Vince move. This is, this is the Vince McMahon we used to respect a little bit, you know? Yeah. I mean, this, 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 I mean, wow. I mean, what a coup this was. Uh, and Jim Ross going on the radio and doing this comes after he was backstage at a WWF TV taping in Augusta, Georgia on March 9th and was introduced to everyone there as though he was joining, the newsletter mm. said. Uh, Vince McMahon would say Christmas has come early for the World Wrestling Federation on that WSB radio show uh, and then compared Ross to John Madden. Uh, <laughs> then he put him in a toga at WrestleMania. <laughs> Yeah, lost in those quotes is probably off air where it says, by the way, I hate Christmas and John Martin's doing it wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I hate Christmas, pal. Um, (laughs) So I don't know if WCW had to have someone reading the newsletters, right? Like, I don't have the date of the radio show when he did that. But like, 
do you think someone from WCW like should have been like, oh shit, Jim Ross is backstage at a WF TV taping. We probably shouldn't let him do his radio show anymore. Yeah, that would certainly be my thoughts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like you know, you if you know if if you know he's there, which they surely, uh, you know, everybody hears everything in wrestling, right? So yep. there's no way they didn't hear this. And for them to hear this and then just kind of absentmindedly just like, yeah, he's just kind of still doing his thing and whatever, and not realizing there's a potential for this, laughable. Laughable stuff. Well, I, th- I believe they thought there was some no-compete where he couldn't go there for a while, but I don't know. They he, JR got around it. Yeah, Jim Ross uh, makes his debut at WrestleMania 9 in a fucking toga, which I'm sure he loved. And uh, <laughs> Well, just, he, was, I, I guess, he, 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 he like resigned from WCW on February 26th. Okay. So he was, he was already gone. They knew he was oh, gone when he shows up. Just well, looking but at I this think here. There was, I, okay. Yeah. I mean, I know he was gone, but I think there was WCW was of the opinion that there was a no compete. Like he couldn't go right to WWF television. Well, he got that wrong. Yeah, <laughs> spoiler alert, he did. Um, Jim Ross, I, I guess, I don't know if there's a better time to talk about this than right now. Jim Ross on WWF commentary, um, like in, in these, like, 1993, your thoughts. I don't know mm-hmm. how much of the TV you watched so far, how much you can remember. Like, what, what's kind of your impression of him as a WWF announcer? I like him a lot during this period of time. I think that I, I really like him at King of the Ring in particular. Um, I I feel like, again, in keeping with that whole theme of a, of a new WWF, I like having this fresh voice. Jim Ross has just got such great enthusiasm. And the one thing that you'll say about Ross, if when you watch, you know, I know we're going to talk about WrestleMania on the next podcast, but like he comes in and he knows everything. He knows what's going on. He knows how, what we're trying to do, and he knows how to get everything over, and he's just fucking brilliant. So I actually really like him a great deal. And I think, that, like I said, at King of the Ring, I think he does a phenomenal job. I, and you know what? I think he works with Bobby Heenan a lot better than he worked with Jesse Ventura. Because, you know, oh, like, yes, I agree with that. You, you know, it, for some reason, like, I don't know if it was just because, okay, you know, in WCW, it was Ventura coming to. Jim Ross's turf. Here, Jim Ross is the one who is, you know, came to, you know, Heenan's turf. And so he's maybe a little more cogs and okay, I've got to kind of tailor my style a little bit. But they work well together because it should be pointed out, Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan, you know, the Royal Rumble's their last pay-per-view together. Yeah. That iconic duo. And they don't do a ton of I mean, they do that March 15th Raw together, yeah. but there's not a ton of Gorilla and Bobby because Jim Ross takes Gorilla spot on wrestling challenge. Wade Keller hypothesized maybe there would be some heat because uh, Heenan would be upset long-term uh, partner Monsoon was gone. I didn't gather that though. Yeah. Gorilla, I think was supposed to call mania originally because they, they kind of make Gorilla the host and Jim Ross is now in his, in his chair at WrestleMania. But um, yeah, I feel like the dynamic with Heenan worked much better probably because Heenan's style is that he's the even even if he makes his jokes, he's the, the ultimate butt of the jokes. Whereas Jesse is putting himself like not that he's putting himself over, but like Jesse's right. You know what I mean? Jesse yes. Jesse will say his shit, but Jesse is inherently right. He really doesn't like say go out of his way to say anything that's ridiculous or completely like 
egregious to the point where it's like, okay, you're obviously full of shit. The whole point of Jesse was that he was actually credible in his role, whereas Heenan is deliberately not credible, which allows Ross to kind of put him in his place and for Heenan to have no ego about letting him do it. Excellent point. Excellent point. That's absolutely why it worked, I think. Um, well, I guess it's time we get to the uh, big day, big, big uh, return here in the WWF. Liam, on March 9th in Augusta, we get Timmy and Tommy Turtle. <laughs> I thought you forgot where we are in these notes. Fucking goddamn. Uh, Barry no- Hardy and Dwayne Gill doing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles gimmick for those who have not seen it. This is absolutely WWF's answer to the ding-dongs. We will put the video up on the Facebook page. I gotta say, I do not know why there is this feeling in... It feels like it's, a, it's so fucking Bush League, man. Like, oh, this awful. thing of, like, Arachna-Man and the ding-dongs. It's like, do people think that kids who like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are going to accidentally stumble across Timmy and Tommy Turtle and all of a sudden become wrestling fans? Or if you like Spider-Man, you might like Arachnaman. Or if there's like a Power Rangers tag team, like oh, all of a sudden I'm gonna get into this. Like this is just it's so bushly. It looks like like Halloween costumes wrestling. Yeah, and it's just a one and done. That's it. March 9th in Augusta. Timmy and Tommy that. Turtle. Uh, that is it. And that is it for this show. So I'm gonna cut in here and just say that this was originally recorded as one gigantic episode that overshot on time so what we're going to do is to make this more consumable we're going to split this up part 1a is what you've just heard part 1b already in the can is coming next week and on that show we're going to be talking all about the return of hulk hogan to the wwf the big angle with him and brutus beefcake and money incorporated that leads to wrestlemania 9 we're also going to be talking about brett the hitman hart and his main event feud with yokozuna and also what could have been done instead at WrestleMania 9, shaking up the card a little bit and kind of throwing out some booking ideas that maybe they could have done to make WrestleMania 9 a little more palatable than what we ended up getting. So that's on the docket for next week. It's already ready. Part 1B of our series, looking at 1993 and the WWF, is coming next week. So I want to thank everybody for listening up to this point, and we're going to talk to you again in seven days. Mm-hmm.